welcome to the Voices of War, a podcast with a simple vision, to bring to life the true costs of war through the voices of those who've lived it. I'm Maz, and I speak to soldiers, academics, refugees, peacemakers, and anyone else who's been touched by war, in the hope of demystifying, and most importantly, de-glorifying it. If you like what you hear, please consider showing your support by reviewing the show wherever you get your pods. You can also support us on our Patreon or Buy Me A Coffee page. Links to both are in the show notes. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi everyone, this is Maz. Just a brief preamble to this episode with Special Forces veteran John Gartner. As you will hear, he has more than 50 years of experience serving in various Special Forces units, as well as a security advisor working in many conflict areas around the world. The man has seen just about every side of war that there is to see. Having said that, some of his views may be considered controversial, especially when discussing post-traumatic stress disorder. Those who regularly listen to the podcast will know that I welcome such edgy discussions as I hope to shed light on some of the more taboo topics related to war. If you have a particularly strong opinion about anything mentioned in this episode, please feel free to share your thoughts by writing a public comment on your podcatcher or social media, making sure you tag The Voices of War. Alternatively, you can send me a private note on info at thevoicesofwar.com. Lastly, I want to give a big shout out and thanks to two recent Patreon supporters, both of whom have opted to donate beyond the suggested $5 per month. Thank you, Steve and Sarah. Your support means the world to me, and I'll keep working hard to bring you high-quality content about a grossly misunderstood human endeavor that has far-reaching and significant implications. Okay, let's meet our next guest, John Gardner. My guest today is John Gartner, whose career as a professional soldier and security advisor spends more than five decades. During that time, he served in the Australian SAS, Rhodesian SAS, Sulu Scouts, South African National Intelligence Service, and as a trainer for Sri Lankan Infantry and Special Forces Units. He then had a slight change of pace and served for six years as a security and close protection advisor for the former Saudi Arabian oil minister, Sheikh Ahmed Saki Yamani. After this job, he relocated to Brunei, where he spent a further three years in a high-profile security advisory role for the Brunei royal family, working primarily for Prince Jeffrey Bolkiah and his son, Prince Abdul Hakim. In 1998, he returned to Australia to establish OAM Australia, and then in 1999, OAM Indonesia, based in Jakarta. Since then, he has delivered and continues to deliver strategic and tactical security consultancy services and risk management support throughout Africa, Southeast Asia, the Middle East, South America. He joins me today to discuss lessons learned throughout his career, which is also captured in incredible detail in his memoir titled The Fading Light. I just finished this book, which is a combination of unbelievable operational detail, as well as reflections of a man who's seen the best and the worst side of war. John, thank you very much for joining me on The Voices of War. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. So, John, before we uh, get into the nitty gritty details of your career, maybe let's go to where it all started. What motivated you to join the army uh, in the first place? You know, it's actually quite bland and uh, and dry. I was I was born in Adelaide, of course, and I and raised there. And uh, this was in the sixties and seventies. And and I came from a lower socio economic background. So 
I didn't have much in the way of options growing up. I didn't go to university. I finished uh, high school, um, went into sort of the, the commercial world for a few years, and uh, but was found it incredibly boring. Now, I, I had been quite a voracious reader in my late teens, mid-teens, and, uh, and a lot of that was based on on stories of warfare and uh, combat and so forth. And of course, you know, in, in your teens, you, you actually see the idealistic side of these things. You don't actually see the horrors that, that go with that. But um, I, I just decided, well, to get out of my my economic sort of lower life, I the best course would be to spend a couple of years, three years actually in the Australian Army, um, which would give me a, a financial platform and, and a little bit of experience. And then I would see whether I'd carry on with, with my time in Australia. Um, mm. I had no intention at that stage of going overseas. My, my my career path would have been in the Australian Army. It was only as it evolved through that three years that I changed my mind about where I wanted to go and then left the Army. And uh, I, I enlisted in 71 and uh, did my three-year service, which included the SAS selection and time in the SAS regiment here in Swanbourne. Um, and then uh, then I decided to go overseas. So that was it. Nothing Nothing dramatic. Um, no, 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 no journey on the you know awakening on the road to Damascus sort of thing. I, mm. It was just a slow mm. progression as to where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do. By being in the Australian SAS at the end of the, the Vietnam War was probably the sort of motivator that I really wanted, didn't want to stay there, simply because I, as I said, in as a teenager you tend to have a very sort of a compromised view of what war is really like. It's it's um, very naive. Um, and, and I had it in my mind that if I'm going into the Australian Army, this was the height of the Vietnam conflict as well, that I would want to test myself in, in that environment as a soldier. Um, by going across to the SAS, I thought it would be more challenging in that role in, in, in a combat environment. Uh, but as I was doing, or toward, towards the time I was doing my, my selection, which was seven, September 71, the Australian um, government withdrew two squadron SAS regiment, which was the last squadron to serve there. They came back to Swanbourne and that was it. They were disbanded. Uh, and, and the guys who were left in, the, in that unit were, were spread amongst one squadron and three squadron. So I, I got the endless stories about what a great time it was to have served in Vietnam, what, what a great experience it was. But at 19, 20, 21, uh, with not a ribbon on my chest, it was a little bit sort of irksome at times. Distance. And of course, these guys would, would pull a piss somewhat, you know. Mm, so, mm. Oh, you haven't really done much. You haven't much done much, John. You know, you, your time will come, but, you know, maybe when. So yeah. it was a little bit uh, challenging serving in a unit where so many guys had had combat experience and I didn't. And I was I wasn't alone. There was a mm. large number of younger guys who came in 71, 72, 73 who who um, ex- experienced the same same sense of sort of uncertainty about where they were going and what they were doing and and uh, feeling a little bit sort of diminished in the fact that they hadn't served with their peers and their colleagues and comrades uh, in a combat environment. Hence why when Rhodesia sort of popped up on the radar um, and SAS, I knew SAS and Rhodesia was recruiting and I knew mm. that the war was was getting underway. It wasn't intense at that stage in 74, but it was clearly going to become intense. Mm. Um, I, and I sent my documentation over to Salisbury in, in Rhodesia, now Harare, of course, in Zimbabwe. Mm. And, uh, and they offered me a position, a chance to do the selection, and that's why I went. So... Missed Vietnam, didn't want to serve a long time in Australian SAS doing a lot. And, and in those days, Australian SAS was a small unit, was only one in three squadrons. It's much bigger mm. now. Um, and in those days as well, we one squadron would, one of the two squadrons would be on training for a month. The other squadron would be on regimental duties. So every second month you were running around 
picking up rubbish, rubbish bins, and so no, it's, it's all subcontracted out now. But in of those course, days, yeah. the boys had to do it, you know. And, uh, mm. and being a, a trooper, I could be working one day in the in the OR's mess, the next day I could be up in in the sergeant's mess watching washing pots and pans, <laughs> and the next yeah. day I could be driving around a truck sort of picking up the garbage bin. So mm. it wasn't mm. it wasn't sort of an environment in which I wanted to stay. And of course, um, not the environment that. Uh, the the, the, the 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 troopers are in right now, yeah. No, and that's right. And and I remember having one day. One day I was even though fifty years later, this still bugs me. You know, I was working in the officers' mess. I was actually washing in, in the in the kitchen, washing pots and pans. <laughs> and uh, one of one of the young officers who wasn't actually an SAS officer. He was he was from uh, Karakata. Came down for lunch apparently. Anyway, um, some the, the cook said to me, "You need to take some butter out and put it on the table." So I took some butter out of the fridge, stuck it on a on a saucer, and, and put it on the table. And this this uh, young captain, arrogant bastard, I remember him, non SAS, mm. uh, called to me and said, "Hey, you know, basically the, the finger coming back and coming back to me and said, take that away and put it on a proper butter dish.'" So oh, I sort of I was mortified, you know, I was a twenty yeah. year old bloke, yeah. uh, SAS qualified. And being told by this sort of what we call a jam killer in those days that you know you 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 don't understand the sort of decorum in the mess you know put it on a proper dish. So I was I went back and I was I was fuming and I thought you know thereafter every time I sort of think of the SS that's one of the more prominent things that that I that I remember that that, that uh, despite the fact that I'd I'd gone through a very tough selection paracord and I'd been accepted in the ranks of a very fine uh, special forces unit mm. I still did from time to time have to. Have to wait hand and foot on people who really didn't weren't weren't members of the unit. So yeah, yeah, it's not what I wanted to do. It was no way. So yeah, a little bit of an anecdote. But but fifty years later, as I said, I still think that I can still remember that quite clearly. Yeah, and, and I mean it's uh, it, it's completely understandable as well, having yeah. done all the training and uh, you know yeah. uh, a past selection, which of course is is arduous now as it was back then. Sure. Um, yeah. And and in the in the prelude to this, uh, we had a quick chat. I mean, I have a lot of friends and peers in, in both units, both in Perth and in Sydney, um, and, and certainly know from their experiences how hard it is to to even get in or, uh, you know, and, and how selective it really is uh, and how challenging those roles are. One question I must ask, though, because you, you did say from the start that, you you know, you joined in to do your three years. Uh, all of a sudden, you're doing selection. Uh, that's a that's a pretty serious pivot. What, uh, what drove you to even consider uh, attempting selection, especially when you were in there, I guess, uh, for a short time, initially, you know, to to secure some economic means. I, I was I was very fortunate. Time was right for me, and and a couple and and a couple of you know selection courses prior to me. I think that sort of process started. The younger guys were being taken in, but I, I had done my recruit training course, which was three months over at Kaputa One mm. RGB, and I selected. I asked for infantry as my career choice. You know, other guys went to intelligence. Some went to transport, rescue, whatever, you know, they went to the various sort of arms and I, I chose infantry, which uh, which wasn't a popular choice. And, and in fact, those, I think I was one of two who actually chose infantry. A number of others were, were selected to go to infantry. <laughs> they didn't have much choice. But, uh, you can only have so many drivers, cooks, whatever, you know, but but the but the, the core of, an, of, a, of the Australian Army in those days was infantry. So more guys were going to be sort of told to go to infantry than, than elsewhere. But I, I was happy to do that. I, we went off to Battling over at Ingleburn, just outside um, Liverpool in New South Wales, and we did uh, we did three months. It was tough, you know, because it was coming into the winter. It was very cold. Um, it was always raining, and a lot of our, our field work was, was, you know, crossing rivers in the middle of winter type thing. 
And so it really sort of got me into the infantry mindset. You know, this is a tough life, but it's really enjoyable. And in the process of that, we, we actually had a visit from, from a, I, I would call it a roadshow, but probably not, maybe that's a bit too glamorous, but mm-hmm. a few guys from the SAS were doing the rounds of various units and they were presenting the SAS in, in a reasonably good light, you know, what a great challenge it would be for, for younger people, to, younger men to go to this unit and, uh, and for those who were sort of selected to go across to do the full selection, uh, you know, it was a good opportunity. And I thought, well... At that stage, during the infantry um, battle wing training, um, we were talking at that stage about going to the reinforcement platoon, which would have gotten me, seen me, and rather than going to one of the battalions, just straight into the Rio platoon, mm. which would have sort of seen me getting to Vietnam more quickly. Um, but I, I, at that stage, so I, I opted to go to, I thought, well, I'll put my hand up for this. And uh, uh, I said, yeah, I'd love to, love to try this. Three or four of us did that. And a lot of the guys I was, I was training with said, well, why would you be so crazy to do that? You know, that's so tough and so hard, which sort of, yeah, made me puff out my chest a little bit more, you know. I said, mm-hmm. well, yeah, it is. You know, the perception is that it is tough and hard, which it turned out to be. Um, <laughs> and I put my hand up, but I passed the medical. And uh, and, and, in, and in those days, I, I think they have they, they have psych testing now, which is far more extensive than it was in those days. And and I think they also call it a barrier test now, but where they actually push guys through a a pre-selection selection, and then then those guys are sort of shortlisted and sent across to West Australia. Whereas in the, in my day, I didn't. It was the small numbers were picked at a time, probably from from most of the uh, the training courses, recruit, recruit training, core training, and so forth. Uh, and I ended up in in uh, in Perth in Swanbourne, probably about July or August seventy uh, one, preparatory to doing the selection course. Now I had to wait um, uh, as until they could build the numbers up. There was a selection course underway at the time, um, so that was about to, that would finish, and then as the numbers sort of came across and assembled in in Swanbourne in Campbell Barrett, then my selection would get underway. I was very fortunate. I don't know why they did this at the time, um, but the four or five of us who came in my batch, I think were four, we were actually told, well, there's no accommodation essentially, so we're mm. going to put you in with one squadron. Um, so they they actually sort of ported us with one squadron and said, well, because you're with one squadron, you may as well sort of get the feel of the unit and whatever they're engaged on, you, you, you'll be engaged on. And, you know, that would, that would include things like roping, climbing, rappelling and so forth. So I, I was very fortunate that even though I was a, a black beret and non-selection qualified at that stage, we were, we were accommodated in one squadron quarters and allowed to, to parade with them. So uh, once the selection got underway, of course, we were then relocated. Uh, but it mm. gave me an insight into the unit and some of the guys and uh, and how they thought. So uh, it was a little bit of an additional motivator for me. I mm. really wanted to get in. It became more than just testing myself. I, I liked the number of the blokes that I I was serving with that I'd met in one squadron. I thought these guys are really great. And, and they were all Vietnam veterans, essentially. Mm. And most of them had just come back. Uh, so they weren't much older than me. And and I decided, yeah, this is this is really going to uh, this will drive me. So when the selection got underway, which was the first part was over at Rottnest Island in those days, which mm. wasn't the tourist spot that is now. Um, <laughs> it was an old old uh, military and a government facility. They had old barracks and things there. So the first two weeks was very much the beasting there, running everywhere and uh, and and forcing guys to sort of confront their weaknesses and so. And it's surprising how many actually dropped out in that that two week period. Um, but it was also a learning curve for us, you know. Not only was it sort of running everywhere, uh, mm. but we were doing given, you know, um, uh, map reading exercises. We were taught how to operate as a patrol. 
we were given weapons training and so forth. So, and, and a bit of Morse training. So um, it was really a good learning curve. And, uh, and, and, and from there we went to, the, to phase two, which was down in the forests of Southwest Australia, down outside Collie, which then became more of a patrolling uh, assessment. We'd, we'd been taught the skills, the basics in, in Rotnest, on Rotnest, and then we were told to put them into practice. So we alternated as patrol commanders and different roles within mm -hmm. the patrol, which was five, five man teams in those days. Um, so one day I, I would be the sort of, uh, you know, the medic in the patrol, the next day I might be the patrol commander, taking responsibility <laughs> yeah. for an ambush or, you know, and, and you're being assessed all the time by the DS who, who's following you around. And they don't say anything to you, but uh, so you, you're always on exit. You don't do anything wrong. Um, and, and I was fortunate enough to get through that. The third phase being more individual down in the Sterling Ranges, which was pretty tough, tough, uh, tough country. Um, and that was really um, the individual phase where they just drop you off and, and a fair distance from a from an RV checkpoint and off you go. And all those checkpoints, of course, were on top of hills. Mm. Um, and if you didn't read the map, you'd be climbing, you'd be climbing long hills and false crests and so forth. And uh, they would be on the other side of the of the feature. So. I eventually learned that, you know, no, look at the map first and if, if, if it looks like it's a long feature, um, go around it on the base of it and then climb <laughs> straight up. You know? so, so you learn your lessons as you're going. And this, yeah. this is a good thing, but, but it's very fatiguing. Um, and you're all, because you're on your own, I mean, you, would, you had to reach these certain milestones within certain times um, and, and then get back to your RV points the day or two after you. Know? Mm, so mm, it, mm. it was a challenge individually. And that was like two weeks. And then the last couple of weeks, which rounded out to about eight weeks, was was more more of a sort of okay, these are the skills which you'll which would you'll come across in the unit, there's small craft handling, bit of diving and so forth. And then to to finish it all off, there was a twenty, I think it was a twenty miler um, mm -hmm. in probably in thirty K, you know, twenty thirty two K. I think it was miles in those days, but yeah. um, twenty miles. Which was the last in the in the last few days of the thing, and off you went first thing in the morning, dropped twenty miles outside of the barracks, and and you had to be back at Swanbourne Campbell Barracks within a certain uh, time, you know, time, yeah. um, and which might have been four hours or something, whatever it is, four and a half hours. So, um, so even though we were fit as fiddles, um, you know, they were still quite, and that was in 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 basic bush order, you know, sort of webbing and, and rifle, um, and off mm. you went, and uh, and we all got back, but by that stage there would. There was no one else was going to drop out, and and anyone mm. they didn't want had already been selected and said, "Look, you're really not not up to it at this time, but try again some other time." Yeah. So more or less, well, the guys who started that 20, 20 mile we were always we're always going to go into the unit. And at the end of the end, end of that, we were sort of taken in one by one and said, "Congratulations, you passed. Your next phase is the is the para course." Yeah, right. Not not many of the ones that started uh, probably finished. I'd imagine. No, I, I have it in my head that it was around about 20. I think I said some recently that it was 16 or something. And, and I don't really know where I got that figure from because it's a long time ago. But mm, we mm. had over 100 start, 120. I mean, we went over on the yeah, landing right. craft, a couple of landing craft to get over to, to, to Rottnest on, on a stormy day. So, you know, a flat bottom boat getting across <laughs> to, to Rottnest. By the time we, we got feet on, on soil again, we were, well, I certainly was, and a lot of the guys were. Um, seasick. We were, we were yeah. vomiting as we were running. So um, I, I don't understand. I, I said to somebody recently, when I look back, we were all military guys, obviously. We were all soldiers. We were all at sort of a certain level of fitness. I found it remarkable looking back 
that so many guys would drop out in the first couple of weeks, you know, and I think that's more a mental thing than anything. Right. So I think maybe, maybe they got over there, they didn't expect that it was what they thought it would be and chose to return to their units. But but the fact that so many, there's always, a, attrition rates are very high in yeah. courses, you know, why do you think that is? That's a that's a really interesting point. I mean, is that and I guess that happens even now. I mean, is that potentially because of the the I guess the lure that it has and 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 you know the draw of the Sandy Beret? It, it's the idea of it is almost uh, uh, more appealing than doing the job itself. It is. I, I mean, everybody. When you look at, spe- I don't want to denigrate infantry units or any any other mm. arm of the military, but. You know, to me, the peak of the peak of services have to be special forces. You know that that's there's a, there's a certain cachet about it. There's a charisma about mm. guys who serve in the unit. Um, they're they're generally, and I hate this term, but it's probably appropriate alpha male type guys. Um, you know, they're all very confident. Um, they're fit as fiddles. You know, they're fit and strong. And 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 I I must have, because I I look at the I look at the military modern military now, and I and I and I find it a little bit funny at times because when I did my selection and when I served in the Rhodesian SAS, you could walk past the guy in the street and you wouldn't know the special forces, mm. you know. Mm. Whereas there seems to be a mentality, in, particularly in in the US. I'm hearing from a friend of mine in Hereford who served in Hereford that's starting to encroach into Hereford and and I think also in Australian SAS. A lot of gym time, a lot of guys really bolt themselves up. They look hell of a strong and, and fit. But, um, you know, when I, I was... Uh, I was a stick thin in, in Rhodesia because I was carrying 70, 80 pounds, 100 pounds. Um, I was working two-man reconnaissance, for example. I was in, in very dry terrain and thick bush, but dry mm. terrain, and mm. uh, limited rations. You know, you if you were bulked up, you, it would have been uncomfortable. You, you would lose it within a, within a couple of weeks of that environment. You know, it's just so tough. You, you're burning. You're burning muscle and you're burning. You know, there is no fat. Mm, um, mm, mm. You know, you, you might use, you might sort of squat and go to the toilet once every 10 days after all because yeah. you're not eating enough food to waste it. You know, your body's absorbing it all. So mm. um, I know and one of my partners, one of my partners never went to the toilet in a seven day, seven or eight day um, deployment. You know, when he, when he came back, he went and sat on the toilet, but, but we didn't <laughs> yeah. do it because we yeah. were, all, all of the food and nourishment we were taking was being absorbed by the body. So yeah. I, I think there's a big difference now. The guys get a little bit carried away with the with the, the bulkiness of it, but uh, um, that, that's not, that's not an interesting in point. Day. That's a very interesting point. I mean, I, I had uh, we mentioned him again previously. I had Harry Moffat uh, on the show yeah. uh, mid last year, and he actually made the same observation, uh, reflecting on his experiences in Afghanistan. The first time he deployed to his later deployments. Uh, you know, the first yeah. time was the traditional SAS role, long range reconnaissance, yeah. uh, and he described. Yeah. Exactly what you just said, you know, blokes were kind of wiry, um, you know, yeah. thin, who would just kind of disappear off into the night. But then as he came back and later rotations, uh, you know, sometimes, and, and, and I'm going to paraphrase him, but it was something along the lines of, you know, that it felt at times that, uh, you know, they would be readying for a, for an op and blokes would be coming out of the gym with their Red Bulls, uh, jumping on the on the helos and, and off they went. Um, and I guess that's a... Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting shift and, and an interesting change. And, and he also had some opinions as to how and why that might have happened. And that was a, the change mission profile, I guess, uh, for for what the traditional well, SAS role was. Yeah, that's that's what I was told as well. But I mean, I, I mean, even when I was working later years in Iraq, I, I mean, I had a I had an old Australian um, military guy as my type, my like my RSM. Um, it spent you know 
Now, he enlisted in the Aussie Army in the 60s and served mm. uh, many years in military unit. Uh, so I brought him, he was like my RSM over in Iraq, and, and he said he was having endless problems, you know, trying to get the guys that we had. Look, this is a commercial environment. Um, but they were all running off to the gym at seven o'clock in the morning. And he was saying, no, you've got to check your vehicles first. You've got to be prepared, you're ready to go. It might be commercial convoys. It may not be military, but you still have to do first breaks. There was, no, 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 we've got to go to the gym. We've got to go to the gym. And it was ridiculous. And then they were getting all all stoked up if they couldn't get down to the PX and get their, their protein powder. It was, was really quite absurd. They became obsessed about it. And I was in... I was in Indonesia on a, on a commercial site one day and I was bringing in a, an SAS, ex-SAS um, consultant to come and he was a very wiry, he was a climber and mm. he was a superb climber. I won't mention his name here, um, but he was a very well-known climber within you know, one of the better ones. And, uh, and he was also a bit of an intellectual. He, he did a couple of language courses, you know, the long 12-month courses mm. over, in, over in Victoria. And anyway, I said I was on the on the LZ waiting for the helicopter to come in from Bali Papa. It was on uh, Kalimantan, Borneo, and uh, I had a couple of guys around me. And, and you know, I'm six foot four, and I'm quite big. And and people think, well, yeah, that's that's my sort of image of an SAS guy and the special force. Anyway, this guy comes, gets off the helicopter, and I said, oh, here he is. There, and they said, oh, you know, he's not SAS. And I said, yeah, he is. No, 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 he doesn't look it because he also had glasses, you know. Horn rim glasses, which was sort of added to the the, uh, the image, I guess. Mm. But I said, this guy, this guy is one of the, you know, served a long time in the SAS. Not everybody in the SAS is, is, is wants to sit in the gym and build up their sort of flex their, you know, biceps, triceps, and so forth. There are guys who actually would rather, you know, someone like him as a climber would rather be wiry and live um, because he's not carrying a huge weight when he's climbing up a rock face, you know. So, you know, the the image is. It's it's wrong, but it, but it's again. I, I go back to the Hollywood stuff, and um, this is it. You know, you go back to when I was in Sri Lanka. I had young guys sort of putting up posters of um, Arnold Schwarzenegger in the Terminator, and uh, you know, Rambo, John Rambo posters, and so forth. First blood, and they were all sort of you know they were all cutting the sleeves off their arms, off their t-shirts, and I said, "Don't be ridiculous. Put your shirt back on. You know, not mm. going to have this." And 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 it was just the way you have to be, you know. And it's just it encroaches into the into the realities. And uh, but it's not it's, the world's not like that, you know. So mm. Um, mm. You're carrying a heavy pack. Um, a big guy's a bigger target, you know. That's the reality. Yeah. And I definitely want to get to that because uh, that, that's a, that's a piece that really interests me, and that's this kind of cultural or popular culture of, of war warfare and and the kind of kind of soldier the the idealized version of a soldier. Um, but just yeah. to kind of uh, just to just to get back a little bit onto your career now, because you, I mean, after your time, and it's completely understandable to me now, uh, well, especially after reading the book, uh, you know, having seen the guys that are now in the unit, just fresh from Vietnam, lots of stories. You're fit as a fiddle, trained, ready to go, and nowhere to go. Uh, so I can, oh. it, it makes absolute sense why you look for opportunities elsewhere, and it's quite amazing that uh, Rhodesia at the time, of course, Zimbabwe now. Uh, was was taking in people, uh, uh, I guess, directly. But you did have to do the Rhodesian SAS selection as well, right? I did, I did. And, and a friend of mine with whom I had done this Aussie SAS selection, Ken Smith, he he was the first to go, and a couple of other sergeants who, who had finished their time and um, had been to, to Vietnam, they also went in between him when Ken going and, and me finally going in, in March 74. Um, Ken ultimately was killed on active service. Um, but I, I got there in March 74. 
it was a very easy process to attest into the army there. I picked up, I was, I, I'd had a medical, you know, discharge for the Australian Army medical discharge. I'd gone through that routine. I just produced all those papers. Um, the doctor said, how are you feeling? And I said, I'm fine, no problem. He said, you look okay. <laughs> and he signed off on, he signed off on it. You're good. Mental. Yeah, he said, "What's your eyesight? Someone said, "What's your eyesight like?" I said, "It's pretty good, you know." And that, you know, and, and that's simply that, that was all it took. Um, I signed the documents, and I was they had a vehicle to pick me up and take me down to the to um, Cranbourne Barracks, which is where the Rhodesian SAS, Sea Squadron SAS, was was based at the time. Um, very easy game, um, no dramas. Remembering as well though that Rhodesia had a very small population, and uh, a lot of a lot of people because of the war was starting. Probably a few years earlier, because of the declaration of uh, UDI, Declaration of Independence, mm. um, a lot of people decided they weren't going to live there, or they wanted their children to to grow up in a in a different placement, particularly when the war started. So a lot of a lot of guys were leaving, younger guys were leaving, um, and there wasn't a huge pool of men from which to recruit. National service was was in full swing, and and that got longer and longer um, as as the years of the war went by. So Rhodesia had a problem in in recruiting good solid manpower and keeping it because you know your national serviceman only serves a six weeks eight weeks whatever it was mm. and then goes back to school or back back to his back to his job generally you know not not at school but yeah so yeah. to have a regular army you actually had to they had to recruit and there were a lot of a lot of foreigners were coming and not all not all stayed disappointingly many left after six months three months yeah a year whatever um but a lot of guys did did, did like me decided to stay i I also grew roots into the community very quickly. I met my wife uh, as a young, you know, I was only 23 when I met her. She was 18 at the time, 19 when she got married to me, I was 24. Um, so I had I had roots straight away. I, I had family there, you know. So my family in Adelaide became the remote family. My, mm. my immediate family was, of course, my wife and ultimately my first child who was born in 76. So mm. I, I had no trouble integrating and assimilating and becoming a part. I loved it. I, I, I considered myself very much a Rhodesian at the time, um, and, uh, and and a lot of other guys didn't. Um, some some of the Brits brought their wives down from the UK, so they settled well. There were no issues there. They had wives, and and some had children, so they brought families down, and and they, again that sort of cemented them into the community. Mm, mm, mm. Um, a lot of the younger guys who didn't have didn't have the uh, didn't have girlfriends, and, and were, they tended to sort of. Um, lose interest after a while. You know, there was sort of, you know, the, the war and the social life was pretty much intermingled. Um, so they would yeah. come and go. Um, and uh, but but those who stayed, I mean, in the end, I stayed six years. I I, I endured endured probably the wrong word. I I I experienced six years of combat um, in an environment where, unlike, and I think I, I gave a um, presentation recently. I said the difference for us in Rhodesia and South Africa. Was that we were actually fighting for a country that we in which we believed, you know, we weren't doing a five month deployment to Afghanistan and back again, or twelve months to Vietnam and coming home and not going away for another year or two. Mm. We were actually constantly in the in the field on on combat missions, returning, picked up, and that very evening I could come out of a contact in in the bush in Mozambique, and that mm. very evening I could be home with my wife and children or child at that stage, you know. So so it was a it was something we valued. We we defended the borders as best we could, and um, we were heavily outnumbered, of course, and and with sanctions that didn't make it easy. Mm, mm. Um, we were often short of ammunition. Fuel was always a challenge. Um, South Africa supported for a long time, but when when they decided that they wanted to 
uh, squeeze us a little bit, then fuel would, would, would be held up at Five Bridge and ammunition trains coming up with ammunition wouldn't wouldn't get through the border quickly. So, you know, there's eventually, ultimately, the South Africans called the shots there. But mm, in, the, yeah. in the six years that we fought, I, I always thought it was a noble cause. Um, people will, will criticise me um, and have, um, but many actually support me because they see what's happened in, in, in Zimbabwe with the kleptocracy, the, you know, the, the oppression of people, uh, the, the 90% unemployment, whatever, you know, the, you know mm. the, it wasn't the heaven that, that was promised the, 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 the black community when, when, they, uh, when they supported the, the, uh, the uh, insurgents so, yeah. uh, or, or the liberation groups, as, as they called them. So, you know, for me, it was a personal thing. I, I, I believed in the cause of Rhodesia. I thought it was reasonably just. Um, not everything was right, you know, but it wasn't quite as bad in, in the eye, in, from a perspective point of view, as apartheid, for example, you know, apartheid where, where you know, that, that whole policy was, was crazy. And I always thought it was crazy. Um, and it couldn't survive, you know, it was financially, it was just, just impossible to, to maintain mm, mm, mm. double twin systems, you know, so, uh, and morally it was totally wrong. Yeah. Um, but but I didn't think that was. I worked with black soldiers. I mean, I trusted and trusted my life to black soldiers. You know. So, yeah. Well, that's a, you know, that would be an interesting piece to 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 talk about. I think it was in a, when we get to your uh, Sulu scouts uh, yeah. days. I mean, it was a it was a mixed race uh, mixed race teams. Yeah. But and I definitely want to get to that because I think that's a really unique part of your or at least uh, a part of the book that you that you describe in a lot of detail. But just going back to the point of of, of effectively fighting for another country's cause. How was that? And I ask this uh, from a very personal perspective because, I, as I mentioned before we started, I mean, I was born and raised in Bosnia um, and found myself in the Australian Army serving overseas uh, for Australia. And I, much like you, embraced uh, and wholeheartedly embraced what Australia represents as stands. Uh, but how was that for you? I mean, I guess the 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 the, the shift from, uh, or I guess in your case it was slightly different because you went straight, you went from one special forces unit to another and started serving on the front lines immediately. So, so how was that? How was that kind of mental bridge for you? No, it was, well, it was, well, it actually was was to, to me. It just seemed so normal an evolution from the Australian SS. I pre- prepared myself in the Australian SS. I've mm, done mm. I've done good courses, you know, courses that made me valuable to the unit, you know, and that that would would add my add value to the unit and, and meet some of their their strategic and tactical needs. So I was ready when I came across the Rhodesia. I did the selection. Um, I'm not saying it was easy. It was very tough, but it was short um, because they weren't, unlike the Australian SS, uh, and, and later when the Rhodesians, they embarked on their own recruit training, so it became a long course. But in, I was in that sort of window of opportunity where they were wanting guys from overseas with experience, and, and the people I did my selection with were ex uh, Power Reg and so forth. Mm. Um, some young guys, of course, Rhodesian light infantry blokes who'd been trained there. Um, so they wanted guys to come do the selection, get through the selection, then deploy to the field at Paracourse and then, then yeah. on operation. So they didn't need to train people um, through sort of three to six months recruit training. Yeah. They wanted guys to come test themselves on the selection. So there it was, very tough, in the very on the eastern highlands of, of Rhodesia, which was um, in Ngombe and these other places. These were tough, tough, you know, high, high mountains and very, mm. very difficult terrain. Um, and and uh, and and off off we went, and, and it was mainly an individual effort. The first day was a sort of a team thing, carrying this huge log tele- telegraph pole or something. We sorted <laughs> the men from boys, 
Um, and 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 the guys did drop out from that because they found it difficult to to work as a team and they were whinging and moaning. So so some people do do step back from that. Um, and then the, the the rest of it was was individually. You know, again uh, going from point to point and meeting milestones within certain times and 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 getting to to the final RV where we're told, okay, well done, you you're all passed. Now it's time to go and do your your para course. The para yeah. course was very quick. Typical paracourse, so no no time wasted, a bit of ground training and then get guys up in the aircraft, which was the Dakota in those days, the C-47, DC-3. Um, a nice aircraft to jump from. Uh, guys would sort of get up, kit up um, in the morning. It was always very early morning stuff. <coughs> and then they would uh, do the jump in the morning and uh, probably two a day. I'd have to look at my my um, my record of jumps. Mm, but, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> but um, it just seemed a very quick process, and then I was I was uh, I was para qualified. I had the right because I'd served with the Australian SS to wear my SS wings anyway prior to doing that, and I was the only one on the course who had had that right because there were no other Aussie SS guys there. But um, there, as I said, I think there was one Brit para guy. He had Brit para wings, mm-hmm. um, and then we were we were sort of you know presented with the Sandy beret um, and integrated immediately into the unit, and bang, I was I was on ops quite quickly. Yeah. So your first, so your first, uh, and I guess as you say, deployed quite quickly. And 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 would you then say that was your first uh, combat experience? That was also pretty, pretty soon after after getting to Rhodesia. Well, no, Craig, preparatory to to combat, nothing happened though. Um, I mean, you, you don't know that at the time when you deploy an ops that you're not gonna you're not gonna have a, a firefight that first day or first week. Mm. But you always prepare for it, and you always expect it, and and this is what you expect. So. Um, it took a few ops. Um, you always expect to come across the enemy, never did. But but ultimately, that first year, I we deployed on a very large operation into Zambia, which was uh, a major arms cache, and that was really the first um, cross-border operation that had been authorised by um, Combined Operations in Salisbury, and it was an SAS thing. And and we were no more than fifty or sixty men. That was the, the extent of the squadron, sea squadron in those days. And off we went, and we uh, and we had our. I had my first firefight that day, and uh, exciting as hell. You know, I know that sounds makes me sound, you know, sort of a little bit cold blooded, but uh, it's meant, it, my expectations were, you know, you train for years as a special forces soldier. You know, I know that in one of your one of your questions, what does it feel like to sort of prepare for for killing people? You don't actually prepare for killing people. You train to to take on an enemy, which is really a sort of a a more ambiguous sort of thing rather than an individual thing. You know, you know, you're not visualizing the impact of a bullet on an individual body. You know, you're you're you you you're talking you're thinking about, you know, an attack against a large formation of men or something like that and, and fighting through. And it becomes a very sort of a little bit of ambiguity about it. Mm. Um, but no, no one I know in, in special forces ever sort of thought and and I've seen it on TV, you know, um, and again I, I go back to the Hollywood stuff. Uh, what was it like to kill somebody? You know, how did you prepare yourself? Now, the fact is, you're training to do this, and when it happens, it's just it's just an extension of your training. There's no there's no joy, um, there's no exhilaration, exuberance about it. Um, there's no remorse as such. I've never known anyone. You know, this is it. I've survived. He's dead, um, and and let's carry on to the next thing. And that's how I felt at the time. It was I I, I didn't take any joy in in that that first contact and. Uh, and I, but I had no remorse about it. it. He would have killed me if he had had the opportunity. I mm. survived that and, and other other encounters over the years. And uh, 
and and that's how I look at it. You know, no, no. So do you I remember? Have, yeah. Like, no, I was just gonna say, do you do you remember the the, the first insurgent yeah. you killed? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Yeah. yeah, I had him running. He was running down a river line, and uh, and and I he looked. Up, I I was on. I was actually in a, a stop uh, stop line with with another Australian colleague of mine, ex Australian SS, and. Uh, we were we were on the sort of edge of the river and uh, and uh, I, I looked up the fire the the attack went in on on the main camp um, a huge amount of fire went down um, and and was returned by the, by the, the our our opponents the insurgents but they also bomb shells they didn't generally sort of um, at that time of the morning it was quite it was first light so we had, it took them by surprise no doubt they they did return fire but then generally they would they would bomb shell they would they would leg it and. Uh, and this guy came running down the river, which was a silly thing to do. He should have gone through the bush, running down the river line, uh, meant he was out in the open. So my colleague and I both opened fire on him. And uh, yeah, look, he he looked up as 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 I sort of moved. He sort of looked and saw me. He was probably no more than 50 metres away, maybe even less, you know. Um, so we engaged him. His momentum took him into, into the bush, um, out of the river and into the bush. And then the other stop sign um, finished him off. So... Look, he was he was dead running, a dead man running. You know, mm-hmm. sort of, we'd, we'd hit him with a number of rounds, and he would never have survived it. Uh, I guess the adrenaline flow and and all the other things that go with that um, just kept him running. And uh, but yeah, I, I I can still see that he was in a big trench coat, military Russian style trench coat, uh, flapping around his knees and uh, and uh, and armed. You know, so yeah, so mm. he was a, he was a, he was a fair game. Mm. Yeah, of course. And, and I guess the reason I asked you that question is because that's something we don't often talk about and certainly not in the, I guess, um, matter of fact way that you do, because perhaps most, even people in uniform like myself, um, have never taken fire a shot in anger. Um, you know, I've never, I've never been in that situation, I've, although I've served uh, uh, on warlike operations, I certainly was never um, in that type of a war. Uh, but there is always this idealized version of uh, and and you know, you know your book reads like a like a, every boy's kind of a, a dream, right? Is to to join the special forces and to all, all the all the all the all the things that uh, you know most young boys dream of. And this is why you know the draw for selection, um, even the the terminology special forces. Um, you know, to be selected, yeah. you're part of a special group of people who are selected to do something uh, that uh, very few uh, can actually do. Uh, but I think we often forget that it's real um it's very very real it's uh you know pulling a trigger to take a life is um you know you describe it as a as an automated response i guess where your training kicks in but i guess my follow-on question is is it because of that training and your professionalism and commitment to that because you 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 know your, your entire identity your entire being is so deeply inculcated in soldiering in being a soldier i mean this is not a part-time job right this is not a nine to five uh, right so so i guess that that comes with it uh, and is that then what allows you to 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 compartmentalize it and and i guess deal with the act of killing as merely part of the job yeah you do and and, and i mean i know to an australian audience we sit in our, our ivory towers here and we we criticize not we and people criticize mm military act and, and particularly on the left side they go on you know particularly if you're quite woke you know this is a terrible thing you know armies are horrible things to have why do we need to have them why do we have to go to war the reality is this is this is politics by other means mm-hmm. um and, and you deal with it and now one of my former partners who was a former SAS officer 
said to me one day, just in a casual conversation, he'd never been to war. Um, I, I wonder what I, I wonder what I would have been like in, in a contact. And I said, Bob, you would have been exactly like me and everybody else I know. Um, you would have just done what needed to be done. You would have you would have extended your training. Your training would have would have stood you in good stead. And and the extension of that was you would have pulled the trigger um, and carried on as normal. And and that's how it has to be. You, you cannot, you know, special. I have a I have a real thing about the the way PTSD has been commercialized, industrialized, and uh, uh, you know, and I'm, and I'm not denying it exists. Of course not, it mm-hmm. does. But um, I said, you know, this is the nature of the work we do. We prepare for this, particularly the special forces. You're training, you know, you're going into into a training area that's called the killing house. You mm. know, you're doing urban warfare, house clearing, room clearing in the killing house. What what else do you think it's going to be? You know, it's not the wounding house or the capture house. It's the killing house. This is what you go and you do it. And this is why when I was dealing with I was dealing with some special forces guys in Sri Lanka. And we built a, a, a urban warfare house clearing facility. And I said, this is your killing house. And they said, oh, really? Yeah. And I said, yeah. What do you think you're going to do in it? And they said, oh, yes, boss. That's great. Yeah. So, And they, they, they embarked on their training with tremendous vigor because they knew that this was something they could possibly put into action because they were an army, uh, special forces, on a war footing. They were at war in Sri Lanka. So they knew when they if they went into a an urban environment or a house clearing um, operational house that there was an enemy inside who would be trying to kill them so and they would kill them instead so um this is the reality you just get on with it you know there's no there's no hiding under bed i mean someone said to me years ago every time i hear a car backfire i duck for cover i said well we're talking modern cars when do you ever hear a, have you ever heard a car backfire i've never heard a car backfire you know, so what are you talking about? You duck for cover when you're walking down the street. I mean, someone told me did that happen to him in Pretoria, and I said, you're talking bullshit. Don't be mm. ridiculous. You know, I okay, fine. Sort of, you know, they fall for this sort of this ridiculous idea that, you know, that this is what people say should happen or has happened to others. Therefore, it should happen to you. No, it doesn't. It doesn't always happen. And I, I know a lot of special forces guys who serve many combats and conflicts, you know, and, and none of them, none of them, Sort of tell me, oh John, I can't sleep at night. Um, I, I'm 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 aggrieved with with bad memories and so forth. I I'm always sort of alert and nervy and so no, that doesn't. None of us are like that. I know nobody like that. You know? Okay, I mean that's a that that's certainly interesting, and I and I guess it it also might be viewed as controversial, uh, and I certainly welcome it. Uh, but yeah, and that's a and I certainly welcome the discussion. I, I guess my my only retort, I guess, to that would be. You know what? What do what do you say to the number of, of, of veterans committing suicide? I mean, we, we've we've gone well over five hundred now. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, and this is you know combat and non-combat veterans. Uh, where we've lost forty-one yeah. in Afghanistan, we've lost you know more than ten times that uh, to suicide. Yeah, no, I know, and it is controversial, and I, and I try and sort of measure it with a little bit of sensitivity when I say that. I know, for example, and I think I said in a message to you recently. PTSD is, is a here and now thing. There's no, but to me, someone like a paramedic who has to drag, you know, an innocent driver or victim or a passenger out of a car, a dead body, a police officer who has to go to a murder investigation yeah. or a domestic violence that led to murder. These truly are horrendous. And I know policemen and paramedics who, who told me, you know, they really have difficulty. They do need counseling. 
and I'm not talking, and, and uh, when I talk about PTSD, and, and, and I don't want to say I poo-poo it, I just don't emphasize it as much with special forces because your whole training, everything you do, the reason you go into special forces is not to be uh, strut around with a beret on. You go in, special forces fight wars. This is the purpose of a special forces unit. An army has, a general army has, a, has another role. It can be, you know, it can help a government in the time of national emergency, you know, flooding and so forth. But a special forces unit lives up to that. It is special for a reason. It's, it's geared for war and war is killing. So anybody or most people who go into that space, and, and I, might, I, might be, I might be contradicted here by others who listen to this, but my view is that anyone who goes into a special forces unit is well aware of what they're about, what they may confront. And the reason they go into it is because of that. And the reason they stay in it after multiple combat tours is because they enjoy the work they do. They get a sense of achievement out of it, a sense of satisfaction that they're, they're representing their government, they're protecting their people. And there is a nobility to this. I'm not talking about guys who say, I really enjoyed that. It was a personal challenge. And, you know, I can strut around knowing uh, that I've, I've endured, you know, 20, 30, 40 contacts. Um, there is a sense within a special forces unit and a special force that you're serving your nation uh, mm. and you're doing it to, to, to the best of your ability and you're putting everything on the line. Now, I see people talk about sportsmen doing heroics, this and how brave they are and what courage and so forth. You know, these are highly paid sportsmen trained to do these things. And, and, and they, 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 this, is, this is not the same as, as a soldier, you know, and particularly mm. a special forces guy. When you, when you go and deploy on operations, it's going to be very high risk, um, which is why they, they, they wouldn't deploy special forces otherwise. It is high risk. Um, and and and, uh, and and you're putting everything on the line. And there's a chance you may not come back. And I've seen guys, you know, I've seen a lot of people shot. You know, I've mm. seen colleagues shot. Um, I've seen the horrors of, of men wounded. I've held people as they're crying in pain. Um, I understand what it is. And guys like me, we've actually sort of, we've, we've got the blood on our hands of our friends, you know, as we've tried to save their lives. When we've loaded them into helicopters to, to get them back to a treatment facility, mm. we understand that the risk the risk is there. We see it. You know, this is not this is not some something on a movie that you watch um, and so you can walk away and make a cup of coffee. This is the real deal. This is mm. what it's like. And uh, and for guys like me who've made a career of conflict, not because I like conflict, but I like the the challenges that go with it. Um, and I also believed in what I was doing. You know, certain things I've I've pursued in my life, I actually believe the cause was right. Um, is, is that a necessary precondition to, to be successful, to be successful in the, in, as you have been in, in all those roles? Is, it, is that a necessary condition to really embrace and embody, you know, the, what you're representing? Uh, because ultimately your life, your life depends on it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it does. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's, 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 that's the reality of it. You know, there's, I, I can hum and hurry, I can philosophize till you know till the cows come home. But the reality is, this this is a tough, tough life. And if if, if you can't take it, you leave. And and I don't know many people have actually left the. You know, they they do their time. And um, some do ten years and go off somewhere else and, and start up a business. Mm. Some do twenty years and take retirement. Um, I don't know. And and I'm I'm not saying I, I have a broad network of friends, but I have a pretty pretty good network of, of guys I've served with mm, and, mm. and and within other units. And I don't know anyone 
who's who sort of struggles with the day-to-day um, demands of living now because of what they did in the past. But if anything, and I belong to a number of these military societies and associations, you know, the RSL, South African Military Veterans, the Rhodesian, the Australian SS and so forth, and men use these, these uh, facilities um, because they enjoy the companionship of, the, of those guys. They, they like to have the, mem- you know, it's a memory of recollections. They, they can talk about times they served together. Um, they can help one another through on, on hard times. And I'm, I'm not mm. saying everybody is, is blithely above water. People do have, do struggle with it to a degree, but we don't, we don't all put up our hands and say, I can't manage, I can't deal with this myself. I need help and I need money from the government. I need the government to sort of give me a, give me a handout. And that's my, my grievance would be with the sort of commercialization of the PTSD industry now, as I call it is that so many people who've not been in combat, uh, but have been on the periphery of it perhaps, uh, are coming back and saying, oh, you know, for example, I I remember a a sort of a situation some years ago where some guy was driving, Australian Army, he was with the Australian Army protection element there, and his job was based up at Victory. And occasionally he had to escort people down to the green zone, which is like 20-minute run, you know? Mm. Yeah. And Main Route Irish was, was was a was a dangerous place, you know. It was ambush alley at times. Mm. But we used to drive up and down that thing in in uh, unprotected vehicles, you know, soft skin vehicles. Um, and this guy was in 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 you know the bushmaster type vehicles and driving backwards and forwards a couple of times, maybe once a week or whatever. And 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 I heard this story from you know maybe a radio station in in the east or something. And he was going on about how he was struggling with PTSD because of his deployment to Iraq and I was thinking well you know why why would that be the case you never came under fire you were living in in in, in victory camp which was the biggest FOB in in Iraq you you could get your McDonald's your um you know the coffee all of the all of the sort of fast food options were there uh, McDonald's Burger King whatever you know Wendy's they were all there and you were in the biggest bloody base in in, in Iraq which was very rarely um, mm. attacked um, and, and you were surrounded by 25,000 US troops including huge armour um, contingent so you know when people start saying that you know I, I just think that I hate that I hate it when people sort of come and say that they're struggling with, with PTSD because of a very minor um, uh, challenge to, to their to their just, I just I just find it no I just it, to me sometimes it's intolerable Mm. I mean, I guess with, uh, you know, your background, you know, 50 plus years of, of doing this work, uh, I can certainly empathise why that would be of you. Uh, I certainly would never call into question anyone's perspectives or how they perceive war, uh, but there's undoubtedly a percentage uh, of people who are, I don't want to say exploiting the system, but certainly, uh, you know, take it, taking yeah. the easier road out. Uh, but I also wonder if that's a, you know, you mentioned something earlier when we talked about the the kind of the need to embody and believe the war you're fighting. Uh, I wonder what it, what, whether you consider that that might be part of the reason, right? Because some of the more recent wars that uh, certainly Australia has been in, um, you know, people, and, and I've spoken to a number of, of, of soldiers and, 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 and even senior officers who were part of those wars, in, in many ways they, they stopped believing in the, in, in the justness of those wars. And I wonder how much that then contributes to, well, what the hell am I actually doing here? I mean, I'm risking my life. Uh, you know, for something I don't believe in, for, you know, 
political uh, influence or alliances or financial gains or whatever it is, right? So, so I wonder, wonder if you have any thoughts on that. No, I agree. I, I mean, at the end of end of the uh, when when the last troops, Australian troops, were withdrawn, the SAS, I think it was, was uh, withdrawn from Afghanistan. There were no no further deployments. I I made a comment to to some colleagues within the unit who had served. I said, "What a waste of twenty years, essentially, or eighteen years, whatever it was, fifteen years at the time." Um, the huge national treasure that's gone. Um, look, we we have defence agreements. We we are. You know, Australia always talks about we punch above our weight. No, we were a small nation with a very small military. Um, we, we're very fortunate where we're located in the world geographically, and we have certain defence and you know sort of advantages. Um, we are a small army. We depend on our alliances, and, and if those alliances, which of course is the US security umbrella, if the US deploys on a task that, that, that they consider in their national interest. Australia has no choice but to, to follow on. Whether we agree with it is, is in no conflict. From a special forces perspective, um, I think there's a slight difference in that the guys would welcome the opportunity to, to deploy on an operation where they can test themselves. Um, they, they understand that this is what they train for. But I think, I, I think we're repeating year after year after year where they're going backwards and forwards and doing, and they tire of that. Of course they will. Um, so you've got to, and I think with the SAS here particularly, they're there. I mean, I know guys who did 10 or 12 tours, you know, tours of duty over in Afghanistan over, over the course of the, the deployment there. That's a hell of a lot. They have families, you know, they have lives of their own. And so eventually they're going to start saying, my goodness, what's this all about? And I would agree with that. Um, whereas, as, as I said, I, I fought for countries where I live. Um, and, uh, and 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 in which I believed, and uh, and I could be I could be back with my family, and I always believed that by defending the borders, I was protecting my family back in Salisbury or in Johannesburg when when I moved south. So there, there's always that sort of um, justification in my in in someone like me who who's defending borders. Mm. Well, guys who would be yeah, I I, I would think constant uh, redeployments one after the other, a few months back in Australia. Must kill you, kill your relationships, and and and, and yeah, there's there's there's, a, there's and of course then that's going to create other problems as well. So mm, mm, mm. would there be PTSD? Maybe not so much the PTSD, but certainly frustration, um, anger, um, a sense that a lot of this is not just no longer justified, and they're just wasting their time and putting their lives on the line for no reason. Yeah, that may come into the questioning and into the equation somewhat. Mm, but, uh, mm. Yeah. Yeah. What's your thoughts on the, um, and this is a question I sent you uh, as well in preparation for this, uh, uh, on, the, on the accusations, uh, particularly of SAS, uh, of all the uh, reports that, that went out on Four Corners, on Killing Field, uh, and of course now the Ghost of Timor, um, you know, which, which allege uh, that some members, particularly of SAS, uh, had committed what ultimately are now being described as, uh, as war crimes. Of course, I just want to emphasize that, uh, you know, the courts should do their thing, and I certainly and, and I've said this many times on this podcast. Um, I, I defend all of those soldiers as much as I can, uh, in the sense that yeah. uh, you know they need that they're in court. Uh, but I, but I, but I am trying to understand the context uh, and how these yeah. things uh, could actually happen. And speaking to somebody like you, I think is uh, uh, is a prime opportunity for that. It's a, it's a it's a difficult situation. Look, there's always a bad apple. Selections are very are very selective, you know. And now with the with the, with the, the amount of psych- psychological testing before the guys even get to do, do the, the physical testing, you know, they can they can generally sort of um, 
winnow out the sort of the, those bad apples. But there is always somebody. You know, they get into an environment where um, there's a sense of impunity because they're they're carrying you know their weapon, they're carrying weapons, uh, they're fighting wars. So you will always get always get somebody who goes to the extreme. And I I think every conflict has that. But I think in the main. The, and, and I think a lot of I think and I think it's coming to home to roost now that the, the command fell down. Um, I heard from guys who said, you know, and, and I would agree with this too. You've got senior senior sergeants who've spent spent 20 years or 15 years in the in the SS. The SAS is a is a is a unit of and officers will hate this, but this is the reality. The SAS in Australia is a unit of troopers and NCOs, right? It's the NCOs who serve continuously there. A young officer comes along, does his selection, passes selection, serves two years in a specific role, and then moves out again. He's posted out to a, to a, because of his career path. He might come back. When an SAS officer told me he served 10 years in the SAS, I say, bullshit, not, have, not possible. You might have done two years as a troop commander, two years as a squadron commander, and there's that sort of pyramid as it goes up because there's a lot of troop commanders relative to the unit. Then there's only so many squadron commanders, and there's only two IPs and a, and a CO. So uh, no one, no officer can do ten years in the regiment as a general rule. Yeah. Um, as a combat leader, um, so your unit is comprised of sergeants, and most of your patrol commanders are sergeants, some some senior corporals, and and these guys have got a lot of experience. A young green officer comes over; he cannot assert himself easily. Um, he's he's very much at the. At, at, and, and I know we, you know, there's there's a code of justice, uniform code of justice. There's a sort of a, a rank structure and so forth. And he's a lieutenant, so therefore he's seen further up the pecking order on the sergeant. Of course he is. Uh, on paper, the reality on the ground is slightly different. You know, a young lieutenant, even young captains, squadron commanders come over. They haven't done a great deal of time in the SS and special forces, therefore. So so they they're learning as they're going, and and they're dependent on very experienced um, senior NCOs to to guide them, help them, and and if that system falls down in any way, um, or you, you've got a more aggressive senior NCO who's sort of more reluctant to to um, assist the young officer coming, then then you can have problems. Hmm. So I, I actually think a lot of the issues that, that derive from from the focus on the SAS now is the command fell down, and and that goes all the way to the top. Now I read something today that that, that they you know Dutton's prevailed on. Um, uh, Angus Campbell, that they're not going to sort of prosecute these guys. Uh, you know, they've dropped charges or something, um, subject to it being a, an independent investigation. So, um, all of this sort of storm and storm and anger about the, the regiment, all of the criticism, the finger pointing, that all of these guys, you know, everyone is tied with the same brush. Thirty-nine civilians were killed by twenty-four SAS soldiers, whatever the figures are. You know, mm-hmm. random. I'm, I'm putting mm-hmm. it out here. Mm-hmm. But, um, no, I, I don't. I don't think that's correct. But mm. you know, there will be a process that will will go through that, and, and innocence until proven guilty. When when people were told to show cause on suspicion of on, on accusations that were unproven at the time, show cause why they shouldn't be thrown out of the unit, discharged from the unit. I think that's a that's a presumption of guilt, and, and that's where I think the the hierarchy in Canberra really fell down. Um, and 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 showed a lack of balls actually because they're too political. Um, mm. And my view has always been generals to to reach the height of, of, of senior general, you have to be a political animal. Um, and and they're seat warmers in my view. Um, many of them have never fired a shot manga. They have no idea what it's like. They have no concept of 
of being out in the bush, being frightened. You know, when I talk about war and, you know, it's an evolution from your training, that doesn't mean you don't get scared. You, you know, the adrenaline flows. Fear is ever present. Fear is ever present. Fear of dying, fear of being wounded, fear of letting your friends down, your comrades down in your patrol. These are all part of the sort of day-to-day operation. And if someone hasn't experienced it, they don't understand what, what it's like day-to-day on the ground. So, um, you know, a, a general sitting in, and I'm not going to name names here, but a general, for example, sitting in, in a chair of command in, in Canberra has no idea what's going on on the ground. Um, I think he was probably let down by his junior officers as well. You know, a lot of that information flow didn't go, didn't, didn't go upwards. And, uh, and, and you're left with a mess and, and, and the poor old regiment sort of left to, left to have fingers pointed at it and they're constantly seemingly, constantly under the, under the sort of aggressive gaze of, of, for example, the ABC with Four Corners and, and mm. other news, news outlets sort of pointing the finger and saying you're a bunch of psychopathic killers, which is mm. not the case. The unit in itself, it's, it's very, very good. The, the people you get, and I was talking to a young training uh, training NCO. He was, well, he finished his career in, in the training side um, a couple of years ago. And he, he I met with him socially uh, over a coffee just for a chat. And he said the people coming in, he was running a, a CQD course at the time. He said the people coming into the regiment now, this was like two years ago, mm. are the best he's ever seen in his time there. And he had joined the unit like the early 2000s sometime, let's mm. say 2004, mm. 2005. Mm. And this was like 2020. So in the 15 years he'd served, he said, these are the best guys coming. And the quality is so good um, that we, you know, you've got to walk with pride about the guys you have in the unit mm. now. Um, this is, this is not a, this is not a bunch of thugs and, and genocidal killers as, as might be depicted. Um, as it's easy to, it's easy to depict these guys. Yeah. Uh, as, as, and incidents that are ha- highlighted and publicized probably don't make, you know, there's this, you know, there's this, the circumstances at the moment where something is very much in the public eye and the accusations are, are flying thick and fast. Um, yeah, that, that does disparage the regiment. And, and I think it's sort of, it's unfair to the regiment. The regiment mm. is a fine body of men. It's an excellent unit. It's, it has a hugely strategic value to Australia. And it should be valued as it, as it deserves to be valued. Mm. No, absolutely. And I, and I wholeheartedly agree. And, uh, and, and as we already mentioned a couple of times, I've got a lot of friends uh, who serve in those units now uh, or have served in the past. Uh, and, and every one of those men that I know are certainly, you know, highly ethical, highly motivated. Yeah. Uh, and joined yeah. joined those ranks for the right reasons, uh, yeah. but he did say something that was really really impactful to me, and that's the um, and that's I guess what I'm really trying to zero in on. Uh, you know, one of the things that I that I that I've addressed previously, and 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 even with military ethicists and so on, is this idea of bad apples. There's something that doesn't sit well with me uh, uh, with calling a few bad apples because nobody in my mind is born a war criminal. Uh, nobody in my mind uh, is born. Uh, with the ability to to conduct uh, uh, things that we would ultimately deem unethical, and I'm not even talking about Australia now. I'm not even talking about our SAS. You know, you you rightly pointed out every war has it, uh, but you also made a really strong point that resonates so strongly with me is that you know war is ugly, war is hell, war does something to to people uh, that no other human endeavor can do. Uh, maybe we want to z- maybe we can maybe we can zero in on that. I mean, what in your view, having spent years and years and years in these types of situations, what does the environment of combat do to a soldier? You know, how does it shape a soldier? 
in in the main, most people engage in combat. And I say there's bad apples. There are, but they're very few and far between. And all the time I've served in Rhodesia, Rhodesia was on a war footing. You know, you if you, you wanted combat, uh, if you wanted combat for the sake of combat, you could join a unit that was constantly, for example, the Rhodesian Light Infantry was was engaged for fire force. That means it was ready to go on call out from, from teams in the field, reconnaissance teams in the field would identify an enemy position, a group and so forth, and the RLI would generally jump in and and, and parachute in and, and helicopter in. So, I mean, I know guys who did three operational jumps in one day um, into different combat environments. And it might be it might be small combat contact, you know, a couple of here, 10 there. Um, but, but you know, coming down, they're still coming under fire. So if you wanted that, you could do that all the time. And within those units, there, there were no there were no accusations of atrocities. The guys were very professional. When I we had an incident, uh, and I put it in my book because I wanted to highlight how accidents can happen. We had ambushed a, a group of twenty three, and we killed we killed seventeen of them, and and the other six who escaped were seriously injured. We know that, and possibly died. So we we had a hundred percent kill and casualty rate on that. But we were told to stay in. Now, it was a, we'd been there. We'd like we took two casualties ourselves. We lost two of our men of the twelve. We lost uh, two, and we were down to ten. And in last light, rainy conditions, um, hard to see. Um, one of the stop signs saw saw a, a small group of three guys coming along, and it looked like they had, they had weapons over their shoulders. It turned out that was sort of tools, and and the ambush was was initiated. Now, if we were hard hearted. We would have just shrugged our shoulders, collateral damage, and 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 carried on. Of the ten of us on that helicopter when we pulled out, not one of us felt any joy or satisfaction. Every one of us was sort of lost in our own thoughts. We felt guilty that this had happened. We were sad that 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 we'd made this mistake, and uh, and there was no okay, fine, you know, this, this doesn't really matter. There was there was a hell of a sense of remorse across the entire ten man team. Um, and when we got we, and we, we got back to our, our, our forward base, we washed up very quietly, did our thing, and then returned to Salisbury. Very little talk along the way. Mm. Um, so this was the way we, we, we responded to, to the killing by accident. And, and it was very rare, by the way. It wasn't, mm. wasn't a common thing. You know, the, 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 our opponents would, would blame us for endless, endless sort of um, massacres, killing of civilians and so forth. Um, which they did themselves, but they would blame the Seleucians and others because they were black soldiers. But we weren't like that. And uh, and I, I I remember the the every every unit in which I served. There was a two in Rhodesia, which were uh, which was the SS and the Seleucians. Um, we took great pains to protect people. We believed that we were working and fighting a war for a cause to protect our country. Mainly the black soldiers. Didn't quite see it as much as, the, as in quite the same light as the white soldiers, um, but they were still loyal, um, and many of them were sort of, you know, felt that Mugabe and his henchmen were were a terrible option, so they were that Smith was a better option, so they were mm. going to fight even though they were black, um, and and we had the sense across both of those units that we were protecting the locals, mm. and when I. I was deployed on a task to to hunt down a group that, that had killed a child, uh, a white child. Now it was months in, after in the most then, gruesome so manner as well. Yeah, in, yeah, in yeah. the most gruesome manner. Yeah. 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 Now at that stage, I think they were saying that that was I was in Salute Scouts at that stage, and, mm. and someone someone had the audacity in Mozambique 
to say oh, I was a Salute Scout co-signer did that, which was a horrible thing to say. Um, but I, I, but it was months later, um, so I knew that there was unlike I was unlikely to find that group. But nevertheless, I found a group, and 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 they were taken out. Um, my black soldiers were were as, as enraged by that killing as the white soldiers. They felt that this was, you know, this is yet another example of, of the of the the horrors of war for sure. Um, but the level of of uh, barbarity of our opponents. Whereas we weren't barbarous, there was mm. nothing bar- barbarous about us at all. We we actually believed in what we were doing. We believed in the cause, and we went out to protect people. I I mean, I was I would occasionally be on on reconnaissance patrols. I would occasionally be um, discovered in the bush, you know, compromised by local villagers, hunters, and so forth. People foraging in the bush. And now, if I was a bad guy and, and, and took, took that sort of the, the view that, hell, I've been compromised, my life is at risk, and the only way I can uh, to, to preserve my life is to kill this person, then I, I, I would have done that. But I would never have done that. Mm. You know, one person we held, we actually kept him overnight. And then we, we released him that, that morning uh, on the edge of the LZ when the helicopter, and I could hear the helicopter, I said, there you go, go home. He was a hunter, so he wouldn't have been missed by his family anyway. They would go off in the bush and hunt for several days. Um, a local local member. So mm-hmm. we, we weren't there to hurt people, to, to hurt locals. I I was in, I mean, I, I, I came around the bend of a river in, during a firefight and, and was engaging enemy in the bush. And as I came, came around the corner of this dry riverbed, there were, there were civilians, women in, in the riverbed, not knowing which way. They were caught in the middle of this. One of them had been wounded in the leg. Um, and I was sort of, I stopped and I stood up in the contact, during the contact, and gestured to these ladies, these women, to to get down. I was saying, get down. And mm. I, 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 they, they understood the hand movement mm-hmm. um, during, during the trial. And they got down on the, on the, on the sand. And once we sort of skirmished through and, 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 and reduced that threat, and eliminated the threat, then we, then we, we bandaged the woman's leg and, and she went back to her village. So... We, we took pains. I, I mean, we, we went out of our way as a general rule, and everyone I know, and I serve with a lot of guys, was the same. We, we didn't want to. We didn't want to kill civilians. I mean, mm. we wanted to protect their lives. This was, this was the whole thing. You know, a little bit corny at times. We're protecting civilization. I know Smith played this card a little bit too strongly sometimes, but, um, but essentially that's what you're saying. You know, we're here to protect civilization. Look what's happened to the north of us. Congo and so forth. Mm. Um, so, so we weren't quite as corny as that, but uh, but we believed in what we were doing, and we were there to protect Rhodesian citizens, black and white. And we didn't want to. We didn't want to, where possible, um, we we didn't want it to injure or kill these people. The when we when we attacked the major camps in Mozambique uh, over the years. Um, they built camps often near civilian um, positions, you know, villages and so forth. So sometimes you would you would find, and, and they did it deliberately, you know, because they could be serviced by the women mm-hmm. and they could be you know, fed and so forth. So so they did it deliberately, um, but they put these people at risk and they used them as barriers and hostages, really, as, as a sort of a as a hostage type situation. And you know, it's, it's very difficult when you're attacking a big camp to. And you come, there's a lot of fire, a lot of chaos, confusion, noise. Um, your adrenaline's pumping, your mouth dry. You're fighting through positions, um, and and someone's shooting at you. Um, it, it can be you still you still got to have your wits about you. Mm. And 
we didn't we didn't tell people it. Yeah, I mean, you made the point about Sulu Scouts. I mean, it's certainly a unit that's uh, that's renowned in many ways, uh, but also has received a lot of criticism um, uh, about alleged crimes that they did. Um, so, um, okay. uh, and that was a question I, I actually had for you. Uh, it strikes me again as though the fact that you're, you know, protecting your your home effectively plays a huge role, and also therefore. It's in your interest, and and it's and 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 the ethics of it uh, implore you to look after the local population because that's ultimately you know your neighbour, and tomorrow you will be living together. So it, it's certainly against your own interest to harm them in such a way that they would they would see you as uh, as as the enemy. Uh, and I wonder if that's also then played a, a part in in some of the accusations you know of of, of Western troops in in Iraq and Afghanistan because you. Again, you, as you said before, you weren't there to fight to protect your country. You were deployed. It was a, it was merely a job, uh, rather than uh, uh, you know protecting your family. Yeah, but again, you know, Iraq was. I think Iraq was slightly different. You know, the, you know, the Iraqis and the Iranians have fought themselves to a standstill for eight years, and 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 both believe that they they, were, they fought themselves to a standstill because both armies were so good. The reality was far from the truth when the Americans came in cut through them like a hot knife to butter, mm. and a month later we're in Baghdad. Um, so the, 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 from a point of view of actually sort of achieving its first strategic aims, it was done in very, very quick yeah. time. Yeah. A, lot of, a lot of political blunders, Paul Bremer, for example, as the sort of uh, the overseer of the US forces yeah, the there, Arctic, and, yeah. Yeah. you know, disbanding um, the, you know, the, the Iraqi mm. army, anyone who had, had a membership of the Ba'ath was Prohibited from serving. Yeah, there's, there's absurdities, you know. Created what is now so now was was very much the foundation of ISIS. You know, mm, the, mm. when these guys went and, and, and became insurg or insurgents in in Iraq um, to to resist the American uh, occupation, um, it, it became a very difficult thing. And then you had the Sunni, the Shia um, conflicts as well, and, and and that goes back a thousand years. You know, so um, this was this was a chance for um, psychopathic killers to come out of the woodwork and start killing one another as cruelly as possible mm. um, until people, you know, sort of people like David Petraeus came along and sort of said, well, we've got to win hearts and minds and, and we've got to change our strategy a little bit. And that then that put the, the American sort of occupation onto a better footing. Um, but all of that, you know, the whole, the whole essence of ISIS and the cruelty and the incredible cruelty of these people, the barbarity of these this all comes from bad decisions made mm. made in the early 2000s in Iraq. Uh, it, it, it's it's sometimes the West doesn't understand the Middle East, you know, and uh, we really sort of and I've said this many times. We really shouldn't be there. Um, let them get on and solve their own problems. But of course, you know, geopolitics is, a, is an entirely different beast, and it's not quite that simple. But but my view is, you know, we don't understand the people. We don't understand the environment. We don't understand the, the animosities that go back a thousand years. Look at look at you and, and your own. I remember being on a plane flying from London for Heathrow to, to Geneva and David Owen, the foreign secretary, was on it. And I was sitting up the front in business classes. I was working for the Saudis, so he always sat me in business class. And I, um, and I was sitting up the front and I saw him and I thought, I should go over and point my finger at him and start talking about the way he sort of, you know, the Brit government has screwed up this whole Bosnia Owen Bain's plan, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was terrible. You know, the, the, the Sarajevo and, and all of this. So this, this was this was in my mind at the time. This was 
a contemporary event, you know, what was going on. So, but you know, you know better than I do about that region. These people, your people, Bosnians, Croats, uh, Slavs, and Serbs, all integrated, you know, you, you were part of the same community for centuries and certainly decades. The last, and then all of a sudden, the Tito gone, the fragmentation of Yugoslavia, and these ancient hatreds and animosities come to the fore. So, you know, a Serb who's married a Bosnian Muslim woman, all of a sudden is, is, is anti-Islam, you know, and the, his wife is kicked into touch. And, and they're killing, you know, they, they're out killing their neighbours. It's just, just crazy stuff. And, mm. uh, you know, so the Middle East is exactly the same. There are, there are animosities that go back centuries. Mm. That's a, that's a, yeah, that's a spot, spot, spot on assessment because I mean, and this is, this is such a huge interest of the podcast and, and, and of my own studies and research is, is how does this happen? I mean, how do we, you know, you, you mentioned Bosnia, how does a neighbor go and exterminate a neighbor? Uh, and one of the things I'm finding as, as I'm, I guess, maturing and, um, you know, trying to wrestle with some of these issues is, you know, ultimately we're all people and we're, everybody's capable of these things and anybody who tells yeah. me otherwise uh is is yeah. dreaming uh which is why i keep yeah. saying no one is born a war criminal there are there are there are bumpers one hits along the way uh that shape you of course you're predisposed yeah. you have certain character traits uh, and of course you know psych assessments help with that um you know and if the right conditions are such then anybody is capable of 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 any of these these acts um you know and 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 i think what what i find fascinating is Again, talking about the idea of purpose and embracing narratives. You know, why can a Bosnian Serb go and kill a you know Bosniak Muslim? Uh, is because he has somehow embraced an identity that is so tied and affiliated to the history of you know the narrative, not even the history, not even a true history, but the narrative that is presented of the Serbian people or Serb nation, uh, and therefore embodies that. And and somehow, if he doesn't stand up and fight for it. Everything he represents or thinks or feels and believes somehow, you know, gets blown out of the water. And therefore, you know, he finds himself questioning who is he? You know, if he, if he doesn't stand up now, when is he going to stand up? Uh, and I think this is all, and, and this, you know, I think this comes back to the, what we talked about, you know, the importance of believing in the cause, because that is also a protective mechanism. You know, if you don't believe in a cause, you're far more vulnerable to, yeah, to, yeah. To, to residual costs, um, you know, and, but, but I couldn't agree. I, I, I cannot agree more about the importance of understanding the environment you're operating in. And again, it's something I discuss on the podcast quite a lot. And we use Afghanistan quite often as an example. I mean, I often say we never fought the war we thought we fought uh, because we didn't understand as much as we were effective. We didn't understand yeah. the ecosystem that we were now part of. We didn't understand the internal machinations between the various you know, tribal groups and so on. Uh, and I think that's the point you're trying to make, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I was I was up in Kurdistan only two and a half years ago. I was doing some work in Sulaimania. And uh, and I was, so I was dealing with the, the president came from that group, you know, not mm. the Erdogan group, uh, mm. but the president of the day came from, from the Sulaimania group. And I was dealing with that group and, and really on some training options and so forth. But constantly I was told it was better in the old days. Saddam... Saddam was a bad guy, but Saddam laid down rules. He said, if, if you don't, if you don't interfere in, in my politics and my and what I I've imposed down in, in Baghdad and across the country, I will leave you alone. And essentially that's what it is. And then guys would say, we could drive from Suleimania down to Erbil, and then Erbil, we would drive all the way down to Baghdad. No, no checkpoints along the way, because we all went to into university down in Baghdad. 
We had a great time. There were great discotheques and bars and so forth. Life was great. And then the Americans came and overthrew Saddam and, and look at the mess we have now. I see exactly the same thing across, across North Africa with Libya. They moved in, you know, I remember, I remember clearly Kevin Rudd, who was prime minister at the time, and not quite banging the table, but going on about, we must impose a no-fly zone over Libya. This is a terrible indictment of, of, the, of the ruling class there. The Gaddafi are terrible people. And I was thinking, well, what would you know about North Africa, Kevin? You, if anything, you're a China specialist. You've never been to North Africa as such. So don't impose solutions on, on people you don't understand. And, and that's what happened. When everyone said, you know, Gaddafi was a bad guy, I went to Libya. I went to Libya in the early 2000s. Life was great for most people. Yes, there was an, an oppressive sense about it. Yes, he played one tribe off against the other, but they were tribes who were used to the, you know, this even to this day, tribe, it's tribe against tribe over there, you know, big tribes. Uh, so um, when you come in and overthrow this thing, the, 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 the cement that kept all of these sort of um, non-cohesive groups together is gone. And mm. you have this, this horror story now of this lunatic in Benghazi, Haftar, who was a mm. colonel in the Libyan army, in the Gaddafi army, goes off to the States for 20 years, becomes probably a CIA asset, yeah. comes back, makes himself a field marshal, and says, I'm going to tra- attack Tripoli. And, mm. and, you know, thousands of people are killed because of that. And, and then has direct the, phone calls with, uh, with, uh, with, with Trump. Trump. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. it's. I mean, it's. A, it's interesting you mentioned you mentioned Libya because I just recently interviewed uh, Jason Pack, who who wrote a, an amazing book, uh, uh, Libya and the Enduring Global Disorder, and he uses Libya. Yeah. He's, he's a Libya expert and has spent many years there and and, and was led businesses and so on and so forth uh, in Libya. Uh, and one of the things that he talks about and he uses Libya as the case study is that you know Libya perfectly represents the confused state of the current. Uh, geopolitics, you know, where you had literally, you know, the the, the French and I- Italians, you know, effectively working against each other in Libya. You know, you had, of course, Turks on one side, you had uh, and Qatar, you had uh, UAE on the other, you had, uh, you know, French special forces uh, deploy on secret missions, uh, 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 you know, US supporting and UN and UK supporting uh, the government in Tripoli, but then you had, you know, Trump jump on a call and, and talk to Haftar, uh, which again is, is creates this complete m- madness where nobody knows what they're ultimately really fighting for. Right? And that, that, that is really, yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy land, you know. But not only that, the whole evolution of the, the war across the Sahel, the thousands of people who've been killed, the hundreds of thousands who've been displaced, the billions of dollars that have been spent by the French and other European nations trying to bring order to chaos across, you know, Mali, Niger, mm. um, now Burkina Faso, um, and so forth, you know, and, and even this morning I read something about Benin. So, mm. I mean, they're, they're, they're Ivory Coast. So, so you know, this this all came about because when when the, when the Lib- Libya fragmented, a bunch of Tuaregs had been in the Libyan army. They looted all of the armories that were there. All of this weaponry ended up down in the Sahel. And then you have your liberation groups and your your sort of, uh, you know, and then you had your Islamic groups come along as well and, and preempt everybody else and sort of knock knock them around, take charge. So all of that weaponry that's sort of floating around the Sahel at the moment comes from the Libyan magazines mm. and armories that mm. were plundered. So at least Gaddafi was a bad guy. Saddam was a bad guy. 
But who are we to sort of say we shouldn't, you know, they shouldn't be able to, if, if their people really don't like them or don't want them, then they will rise up and, and overthrow them. They don't need us to be, you know, NATO to come down and sort of start. I saw Tripoli during, after NATO campaign. I mean, there was, there was huge damage across the, across the city. Not, mm. They were more selective than, say, the Russians are with, with Ukraine. Because mm. Russian warfare is entirely different. You know, they mm. just, they're, they're, they're lunatics there. Mm. But, mm. but, you know, they were selective. But you always miss targets. I, I was sitting in Tripoli at, at the Radisson Hotel. You know, here's a five-star hotel. This is how surreal it was. Um, when there was a huge explosion, I was, I was talking to a Libyan, um, a pilot, actually, and... Uh, and I said, oh, what's that? He said, oh, probably just a NATO, another NATO thing. And apparently, well, the next morning, there were two, there were two consecutive um, bombings and several minutes apart. The next morning, it turned out that this, because it was Ramadan when I was there, um, it turned out that they'd hit a, a um, Ramadan breaking of the fast meeting, a group. They, they were at mosque, you know, and I think they killed 85, 87. Uh, and, and then when the sort of people came to help, they, they hit them again. Now, they said that was a sort of a military target. It turned out, because eventually they did investigate this mm, and realised, mm. and they apologised. US, I think NATO, I think it was a US uh, aircraft mm, that did mm. that. Um, they apologised, they, they did acknowledge that it was an error. Um, but there's, there's nearly 100 people killed because, yeah. uh, because they're flying around sort of dropping bombs on, on innocent yeah. people. I, yeah. Keep out of it. What? Yeah. That's, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's a, and again, it's a, I interviewed Mark Alesco, who was the chief targetee for the Pentagon during the invasion of Iraq in 2003. And, and, uh, and, you know, he makes, you know, he openly says, uh, you know, the, the 50 attempts uh, at uh, dropping a bomb on Saddam, every one of them was unsuccessful, but every one of them killed civilians. Um, and that's you know collateral damage, and you kind of crack on. Yeah. Uh, but there's another point that yeah. you that you're making that really that really strikes me as as, as highly relevant, and that's not not only should we stay out of it, but we also need to understand or, or explore how did we contribute we as in the global community how do we contribute to you know the people like Saddam, uh, Gaddafi, you know they, they sustained their power also because of either support inadvertent or or otherwise. Uh, from various powers, not necessarily just Western powers, but it, you know, none of them existed in a vacuum. They all existed in an ecosystem right. that you know was feeding off each other. So none of them exist on their own. There's an action reaction going on, and and to merely say, you know, Saddam was a bad man or, or Gaddafi was a bad man, and we need to go in and do stuff misses misses a big, big, big piece of the of the pie. Uh, again, yeah. I want to just double click on the fact that neither of these were good men. Um, uh, you know, right. but yeah, They're that's right. right. Yeah, but but we certainly can't uh, forget. Yeah, yeah it's, it's very selective. It's very selective in who they choose to overthrow. You know, and uh, uh, we should have learned from 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 Iraq. They should have learned with Libya that this is. You know, Gaddafi said, "If you if you and during during the bombing campaign, if I fall, the basically the the gates to to Europe will be pushed open because people will come and cross the Mediterranean. You'll have a huge influx of people." Some of whom will be Islamist terrorists, and it's proven true. You know, this is this is no longer a barrier. You know, um, people jump, get as far as the Med. They come all the way from you know, so you know, as far south as I guess the Nigeria and so yeah. forth. They cross the Sahel. Many of them die in the process. Those who sort of are tougher and get to get to the Med, they get yeah. on their little rubber boats and off they go. 
So it's a, yeah. it's a crisis and it's cost billions of dollars, cost Europe. And it's also, um, I think it's challenged the cohesion of some of these, you know, European states. But look, the Italians, for example, very, very angry about the number of, uh, of um, refugees landing in, in Italy, uh, trying to push them on to, to the rest of Europe. Yeah. Um, Angela Merkel saying, you know, we'll take a million of them and, mm. and then sort of experiencing the sort of Opening the electoral displeasure of that. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. so there's, there's a lot of, lot of flow on issues from this. But, you know, Absolutely. But, I mean, what about Saudi? You know, I, I, I work for a Saudi. You know, these are, these are civilised people. But, you know, this, this, is, this is an archaic royal system. You know, there's, there's like 6,000 people in the inner royal family and they're all sucking from the teat of Saudi oil. You know, mm. so uh, and, and of course they can be quite oppressive, um, but you know they they went into they they thought they believed that they could bomb the Houthis in simply because the Houthis are here of, of, of a description um, are supported by Iran. So they go and said we can bomb these people back to the Stone Age, and without understanding that these are mountain tribal warriors who would take all of the hardship and continue to fight, mm. which is exactly what's happened. So it's cost Saudi billions of dollars, international mm. credibility, and they're yeah. still trying to sort of bring the, the, the Houthis to hill with air campaigns. It's ridiculous. Now they've mm. opened up their their, their own uh, airspace to to missiles from, from the Houthis. The UAE is the same. Mm. You know, you start getting you start getting drones landing in Dubai and they're so dependent on tourism. Do you think tourists tourists are going to go to and stay in a five-star hotel if they think, oh, this five-star hotel might be targeted by bloody drones? You know, mm. they're not. They'll go elsewhere. They, people don't, when they have their once-a-year holiday, they don't want to go to a place where they're... they're, they're they don't want headaches. Yeah. Yeah. No, they don't. They want to, So they'll say, okay, we'll go further. We'll go to Thailand yeah. or we'll go to Singapore or whatever. Or we'll go to Australia, you know. We won't mm. go to Dubai. We'll just go through Dubai. So it's yeah. it's, 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 it's yeah, selective, it's, yeah. selective moral outrage. Uh, yeah. And, I, and I, I think, you know, I, I was in Baghdad during, during the sort of... Uh, Regrowth or rebuilding, reconstruction phase, and that's 2004, 2005, when we were doing the elections and, and mm. post elections. And people were saying to me, it was much better in, for for the for the honest, you know, the normal civilian, the local person. In it was much better under Saddam. We had electricity, we had water, you know, we had safety, and um, we can walk down the street. Now you walk down the street and you can be dragged into a black car and sort of have a have an electric drill pushed through your knees for a couple of hours. And then shot in the head, you know, and the, mm. and this is this is this is how brutal it became. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I was in Iraq as a, as a civilian contractor, and, and on my third day uh, working for a British consultancy, and on my on my third day uh, to deal with a uh, credible threat to life to one of my female local female uh, staff members, yeah. um, and and yeah. this is not something that uh, people were familiar with uh, in the you know in the I guess I don't want to call them old days, but uh, you know pre invasion days where. You know, murder and executions were the norm, uh, and yeah. you know, were occurring very, very regularly with with, with absolute impunity. Um, I'm conscious of the time, and, and but but if you're happy to, to chat for a little longer, I, 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 while I have you, I mean, the, you, you're absolutely a fountain of 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 of, of amazing experiences. Um, but but one of the things is that you did spend a lot of time uh, after your 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 battled hardened part. Uh, of your career, you then went into you know worked for a chic uh, and and also worked in Brunei, which was um, to call it the high life is is <laughs> or you know the the high rolling life uh, would probably still be an understatement uh, given uh, given the the kind of luxury uh, and opulence that you would have observed. How how did 
those experiences or those, I think it was even six, nine years, I think in total. Yeah. How did those years, I guess, what am I trying to ask you is, you know, how, how did that, seeing that opulence and that luxury, uh, perverse luxury in some instances, particularly when you're talking about Brunei, what, what, what is the taste that they left it in your mouth? And, and how did you, did, did, it, did it in any way influence how you view the world or people or, or power, money? Well, I mean, once I moved, I must admit, for the first couple of years that I was with, with Yamani, I was I was seduced by the lifestyle. Make no mistake. When you when you when you're getting a, a DCA that's you know commercially <laughs> waiting on you, yeah, yeah, and you've got it. You know, it's got it's configured for twenty passengers because uh, there's beds and showers and all the other stuff. And your your section of the plane at the rear is is better than anything you possibly get commercially in, in first class. Uh, and you're flying around. Um, you, you're getting, you're going through VIP gates. You don't have to go through normal immigration processes and so forth. You're driven up to the door of your plane. You're living the high life in five star hotel. You do get seduced by that. But for the first two years I was with Yamani, I was actually still engaged in negotiations with the Sri Lankans about going back to train them. Mm. And it was only because I, I mean, I had, I had a continuity and a guarantee of, that I'd be paid every month when I was with Yamani, whereas I was uncertain about um, Sri Lanka, where I didn't think that they wouldn't pay me, but I always Just thought delays. that, well, you know, I'm, I'm used to payment monthly and I, I need to, I can't be sort of, you know, we were living hand to mouth in those days, month to month. We weren't making a huge amount of money. Um, so uh, I, I eventually chose the, the luxury and the lifestyle of, of your money, but I, I always felt disgruntled there. I always felt that I wasn't doing anywhere near what I could do. And, and, and I think he didn't undervalue us um, because he'd been abducted from the OPEC conference in Vienna. So he understood the necessities of good security, which is why he paid for his own security. Um, when he was back in Saudi, he, he had to go under the National Guard security because of the royal family. You know, they, they couldn't bring his own security into, into Saudi because he was under the protection of the king. Uh, but when he came out of our Saudi, we were there. And uh, if, we, if we went into Saudi, we might fly in with him, but fly out with the aircraft because it never stayed there. Um, so I, I never felt that I was doing anything, anything valuable, really valuable. And then when we started, when he started traveling in the early days as well, he was traveling very much a man on his own. You know, he had a purpose in life still. He was no longer a, a minister, but he still had his interest and he was traveling the world, Pakistan, Venezuela. These are places I went to within Cairo and it was good. Um, I actually felt, well, he's at risk here and, and I'm, I'm earning my dollars here. But when the family started joining him and he started slowing down and the children were traveling all the time and his wife was in, you, in the end, we became simple, really, I guess, sort of um, caregivers to his children, his wife. Mm. And so we weren't really. And in the end, I mean, at the end, I was sort of answering telephones, loading bags in, car, in, in cars to take to aircraft and flying off with them. But the, the Never felt a threat in Boston with a threat in Pakistan and Karachi, for example. Mm. Um, so shopping trips galore, and and uh, and in the end, and, you know, and you'd get to Italy and in, in Sardinia, for example, in the in the summer, European summer, and he'd be there, an elderly man by then, and his kids are sort of early teens, mid teens. They want to go off to discos, and you're sitting in a discotheque with this poor man. He's sort of in his seventies then, I think, and. Uh, He's sort of making out he's enjoying himself and his kids are up dancing like crazy. Um, but you know he's, he's not, not in any great comfort. But you're doing this job because this is what he wants you to do. Yeah. Um, so 
it wasn't wasn't just sort of in, and and when I had my falling out with with his wife and and was told to leave, um, I I was so I, the fury I knew in my head um, because I surrendered so much to work for him. You know, I sacrificed time with my family. I was away for a long time, period of time. I was doing a job that I knew was never going to test me, and yet I'd been just dismissively, you know, sort of gotten rid of because his wife and I had had disagreements about sort of certain things. So. And and I thought, where's your loyalty? You know, mm. so but I also understood, yeah, he, he was not he was a non-computational man and he was never gonna sort of pull me aside and say, John, this is not working. Tamam sort of doesn't like you here anymore. And you have to go, but I'll look after you, you know, I'll pay you off a couple of months and, and give you time to get a decent job. But he didn't do that. So that added to the fury. Um, but I was very fortunate that a friend of mine who left who'd worked work with the mind team earlier had gone to uh, to Brunei. And he heard very quickly that I'd been dismissed and uh, rang me. And I, was, I was in Perth at the time. <coughs> rang me and said, how would you like to come to Brunei? And I said, that'd be great. And and that's how I got up there. Brunei was Brunei's like sort of Cinderella land, you know. It's, mm. it's, it's, you know, it's not a real country. It's it's massively wealthy. It's, it's run by sort of a, an archaic system. Um, I'm not going to criticise it. The Bruneians are lazy people because they're well looked after. They're not challenged. Um, Jeffrey had had his, his inner coterie of people who were well educated from overseas, you know, internationally educated. Um, they were smart guys, um, but they knew what buttons to press to make sure their jobs were secure and they were making plenty of money out of the, the royal family. And, uh, and 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 it wasn't challenging at all. And uh, mm. you know, sort of, um, yeah, just. I, but by then I was I was trying to make money. I was just, I was my focus then had to be I've got to make money. I'm mm. getting into my forties now. Um, going to war and training. You've got to stop being a gunslinger sooner or later. And I I still look at some of my friends now in their sixties still still trying to get gunslinger jobs. You know, and I'm saying why? You know, why are you doing that? You know, you move beyond that. But you I I, I recognised in my forties that I I didn't want to be a gunslinger anymore. I was happy to sort of be a manager, build a business, and I'd be the boss, and I'd employ gunslingers. Um, and so, vicariously, I guess I would, I would sort of enjoy that sort of the challenge through them. You know, they're the gunslingers, but you know, they're working for me. And yeah. um, so that's how it came about. When when uh, Brunei sort of really imploded um, financially because of the circumstances with Jeffrey plundering uh, Brunei Investment Agency funds to the tune of billions and billions of dollars went missing. Um, on unapproved investments and so forth, he disappeared. He, he took the the easy route and ran away to London and went into self-imposed exile for a while and and let his business collapse around his ears. So it was 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 dismantled gracefully by professional people. I was paid out enough money to keep me going, and uh, and I came back to Perth where I hadn't really lived for a long time. Mm, mm, I had a mm. house, but had hadn't really lived here. And my wife and, and youngest daughter came back as well. So, and I was up at the SS, and that's where I met my partners, who were who were recently retired officers from the from the regiment. And uh, and because I'd been around a lot, I was introduced to these guys, and mm. uh, and we found sort of a harmony in what we wanted to do, and that's how we started the business. So my periods with with uh, with the Yamani and Bruno Royal family were eye openers in the fact that you see the luxury, the 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 ostentatious. Uh, wealth that 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 around these people, but but it also shows you the horrible side of people, and um, the, the hangers-on, 
the people who do anything to make a buck, you know, um, the, the stab backstabbers and, you know, the, the ones who sort of kiss ass and just to move up in the system. It's, it's really quite horrible to see because, and money does do that to people. So, um, and people get ambitious, they want to make money, and all of a sudden they think that they, they're capable of being the PA to someone like a, a Sheikh Yamani, um, and, and therefore they're, they're worthy of a, a salary of three, four, five hundred thousand dollars a year when, when really you wouldn't employ them much beyond sort of, mm. you know, picking up your, your suitcases. But, but they, they made, so I wasn't impressed with that world. Um, and, 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 and it's not real, you know, yeah. it's not real. And, uh, you see this wealth and ostentation and, uh, and I see it, you see it now. I mean, it's so bad now. If you look at, I mean, it's just horrible to see, you mm. know, the, the, you know, the, the, the world seems to be focused on influences and things and, you know, yeah. selling, selling crap that people don't really want. You know, someone goes on some second rate TV show like Marriage at First Sight or something and then <laughs> they, they go off and make a career influencing people. Yeah. And, yeah. um, you know, to the tune of $10,000 for something, you know, endorsing one prize, ridiculous, you know. Yeah. So yeah. Um, money to me has never been the motivating factor. I always, always thought you have to have a cause. You have to believe mm. in something. And when I, when I was with Yamani and, and, and the Brunei Royal family, I didn't believe in the cause. All I believed in was that I was building a, a nest egg for my family. I was yeah. building a lifestyle so I could look after my family. And that was the only reason behind it, you know. Mm. Um, yeah, but there absolutely. was no sense of sacrificing my, my myself mm. to you know for a, for a cause of it, it was nine years wasted really yeah yeah which again it, it speaks to you know much of what we talked about um you know about the, the importance of purpose uh two more questions if i can uh, uh yeah. and again not, noting the time but one thing that really stood out to me and i i'm, I'm a I speak a couple of languages and have kind of lived in different environments through circumstances, mainly not because necessarily by choice. Uh, but I, I found it amazing uh, and a really, really interesting insight that in the book you write that you, you know, you 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 forced yourself to take time out of your busy schedule to learn, uh, you know, languages like yeah. Italian, Spanish, French, and I think even Thai. Why did you do yeah. that? And you know, what, what was the impact of, of of that learning? You know, to to your, I guess, to your professional career, but also your personal relationships. Well, with your money, I, I was uh, with your money. It was a convenience thing because we were traveling in, in, you know, for example, in Sardinia. We were when we get to Sardinia, we got to Sardinia. He employed local staff, you know, cleaners, um, maids, and and kids looking after kids and stuff. None of them could speak English, so I would to to communicate with them. I had to learn. As best I could. Now I'd sit with a dictionary on on duty, and I'd sort of go through it. And, and one of the one of the girls would walk past and sort of say good morning. So I'd say something to her in Italian and ask if that was the correct pronunciation. And it encourages you to to do more. I was remember being up in the Red Sea in her Jada, and I picked up an Arabic book and I started learning Arabic, which was Egyptian Arabic because of course it uh, was Egypt Egypt. And then I went to I went to Jordan. I was in Amman. And I started talking to a taxi driver in, in what I thought was good Arabic. And he started laughing at me. And I said, what are you laughing at? Because he could speak English. He said, I said, what are you laughing at? He says, your accent is so bad. You, you're saying words. You know, we don't say that word. I said, but this is what I mean. He said, no, that's Egyptian Arabic. It's different. So when people sort of discourage you by laughing at you, I, I threw the book away. I, I, I thought, I'm never going to learn Arabic. <laughs> but, um, that was, but when I was in Thailand, when I was, sorry, in Brunei, the the bulk of the workforce was Thai, and they were craftsmen, tradesmen. These were guys from the villages. Not a word of English amongst them, you know. And there were ten thousand of them at one stage across across all of these different companies. 
and there was a lot of there was a lot of industrial um, unhappiness, you know, about wages and and the way they were treated because a lot of the a lot of the managers, the line managers, were Chinese. Mm. Now the Chinese can be very arrogant. This is like Singaporean Chinese, Malaysian Chinese, and so forth. Some Brunei Chinese, um, and they would talk down to the Thais, and the Thais would get up in arms because you know the the, the Thais are an aggressive nation. You know, there's an army. They've got a great army. Um, you know, they've 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 got a good history. Um, and they might be tradesmen and craftsmen, but but they they know that they can you know. They're proud people. Yeah. So, mm. so yeah. So I I thought well I've got it. So I actually got, I had a security guard who spoke very good English. And so I, I sort of said, okay, you're now with me. You will help me with my pronunciation because Thai is tonal language. And uh, and I would walk around with this little dictionary, a tiny little dictionary with a couple of thousand words and phrases and so forth. And I'd say, this is what I want to say to these guys now. And he'd say, yeah, I'd say it like this. And I'd put it together. And, and essentially, look, I didn't, I didn't, there's no fluency in what I was saying, but, but these guys would sit and talk back to me in Thai. Um, and where I didn't quite follow it, then my friend, my, my interpreter would help me. Um, and, and it really built bridges across to these guys. I never had any issues with these guys. Mm. The same with my workforce. I had guard force and these guys sort of couldn't speak English really. They, they, when they were recruited, they were supposed to have had a, a level of English, a basic level of English. And uh, so, you know, just being able to communicate with people was very important. And, uh, and I remember being in, in Sardinia one day and we were pulled over. I, I was in the second vehicle. In the front vehicle, Zaki Imani was driving himself. Uh, which we didn't like him doing because he was a terrible driver. But anyway, well, because he had the Saudi ambassador to Rome, he was his mate, you know, and he was down and staying with us, staying with Yamani, and mm. he was a passenger. So they're driving, and as we're driving, they were pulled over by a police car um, with those little sticks that they waved, you know, and they pulled it. So mm. I sort of jumped out of the car and I sort of ran forward and I started talking to these guys and said, you need to leave these people alone because they're diplomats, you know. And as soon as I said diplomatici or something, Mm. Um, this goes, oh, okay, 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 and off we went. So the ability to to talk to people and and just sort of get a message across, I mm. found was quite important. Mm. Um, mm. And and I, I was I remember being in in um, just across the border from Geneva in France, and I was saying to my some of the Brit guys on the on the team, you know, you really because none of the local staff could speak English. Um, Haute Savoie area, you know, sort of they're, they're quite sort of. Um, Proud of their Frenchness, mm. you know, and uh, mm. they're, no, mm. no, you must, learn, you must learn French. So I said, to them, you, you really should learn a few words of French. No, 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 no. They can learn our language. They must learn our. I said, no, you're in France. And uh, mm. so sometimes the attitude's not there, and uh, mm. so I, I, I did learn. But the Spanish mm. side, I because we were going to Tenerife a lot with with Yamani at that stage, and and I was also looking to go. I was looking to try and get a job in Colombia, mm. um, which was with those days with DSL, I think it was. And they had the BP contract, so I, I thought, well, to, to stand out from the crowd, I could, I could be able to speak a bit of Spanish. So I bought one of these um, uh, U.S. diplomatic courses in in Boston, um, which was quite quite a good course, and uh, and it was taped in those days, not CDs. Mm, mm, mm. And I, and I just sort of would sit and walk around with when I was off duty with the tape playing in my ears until eventually I sort of started to, to get the pronunciation properly and. Uh, and and it would come more easily. So I could pitch up at a you know at an airline desk in Tenerife, for example, and sort of yabber away in in, a, in Spanish about what what seat I wanted, and people would respond as quickly, thinking I could speak really good Spanish. Yeah, so you never <laughs> yeah. learn. But but there's something that's really important in what you're saying that really resonates with me is is that 
every anecdote you've you've mentioned now and how your language helped you or languages, it, you've humanized the other. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You, you you've built a bridge and you've seen the human behind the circumstances, which allows you to empathize with them, which allows you to ethically connect and morally connect to those people to understand their circumstances, to embrace and embody their purpose, represent them, understand their purpose in yeah. life, uh, which I think is, is, yeah. is invaluable, is invaluable as a professional soldier like you were. I mean, and, and for all of our soldiers, I mean, again, it's, an, it's a, the reason I brought that up is because that's certainly something that I, again, discuss quite a lot on podcasts, this idea, you know, culture is a big word thrown around a lot, but, um, you know, yeah. I, 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 I support a couple of courses uh, that deal with, culture and intercultural understanding uh, in the Australian Army now, because I really believe that to to understand, even if it's an enemy, call it an enemy, to understand your enemy, you need to understand the ecosystem, how they view the world. You know, language is one yeah. of those lenses. Uh, and and, and yeah. if you don't have that lens, you, you just cannot connect to that world at all. I mean, it's, you're just blind to it. Yeah. And, yeah. and that makes a distance. No, no, yeah. You have to empathise with people and you have to be able to relate to people and uh, and, and uh, you know, if you're arrogant, leave the arrogance at the door. You know, leave it yeah. behind at the door when, when you go through the door. You've got to you know, arrogance gets you nowhere. You have to deal with people. And uh, and this is what I didn't like about the sort of the wealthy world. You know, mm. um, there's a pecking order, and uh, and you 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 are in a certain sort of position. Don't think you can move out of that pecking order. You know, and that was the feeling I got so often from people. Yeah. Whereas I would never do that to people. You know, the lowest, most humble person. In, in in my experience, I will talk to him as I would to to a Zaki Amani or a, a Prince Jeffrey, you know, yeah. um, uh, light, courteous, and 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 empathetic, and that's yeah. the way it has to be, you know. Yeah. And I, I I mean I still have communications from people in Sri Lanka who 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 was who served with me as as my students and still contact me to this day and say, you know, the best training we ever had, you were the best guy we ever had over here. We really loved working for you and with you. Um, we could rely on you, yada yada yada. You know, so mm, mm, um, mm. you have to, yeah, you you have to be able to 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 relate to people and and respect. Respect is critical. I, I I I it's a truism. You treat people the way you want them to treat you, um, and and everything's tickety boo. There's no problems then. You know, if you start right. treating people, looking down on them or uh, condescending in some way or another, now you, you're just creating more battles for yourself. It's yeah. more obstacles along the way. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Uh, uh, we've just ticked over two hours, uh, John, but I do have to ask you probably the most important question, um, and that is about your family, Cass and your three daughters, who, you know, you, you talk about in such a nuanced way and a kind of there's, it's a continuous red thread throughout the book, um, and, and there's obviously a, a lot of love there, and for, also you, you, I think you represent Cass in a, in a very strong and stoic uh, light, uh, but also your daughters. Uh, but undoubtedly, I mean, 50 years, or, and you know, I think you've, you know, 40 odd years of marriage to Cass uh, through what is an extraordinarily exciting life for you, but also one that's turbulent. I mean, you've moved around the world, uh, and in many ways, you know, she she was, uh, uh, I guess, the you know, making the nest at home, so to speak. Now, how, how did your sure. career impact Cass, and then, of course, how did it impact your daughters uh, over the over the years? Initially, I mean, Cass, Cass actually travelled me with with me on operations, particularly when I was with the with the South African Special Forces, because that was an undercover role initially. Mm. And then when I moved across to the National Intelligence Service, which was more strategic, 
Um, so Cass was with me both times, and and both times was was put at risk. Um, not so much there was no risk when when we were a member of the Rhodesian Army because she was safe at home in, in Salisbury, and we were defending the borders. That was the, that was the cause. Mm. Um, but when she moved, when we moved, she she actually participated, became became part of my cover, and, <laughs> and I I regret I regret having done that because it, but it was just the way it was. It evolved like that, and and Cass was Cass was fine with it. I sacrificed a lot. She 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 actually gave up a very good job because Cass is a very good artist, quite well known here in West Australia, and mm. and exhibits regularly and 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 uh, through watercolor societies and so forth. Oh, wow. and, uh, but she gave up a good career in Joburg to return to Bulawayo in Zimbabwe um, when I was posted there with, under the SF South African SF banner. Um, and then when I got compromised, she was she and our two children were put at risk when I when I went to to grab them from the house and uh, and we ran off into the, the rural areas so we could get extracted um, hot extracted. Mm. Yeah. So she was, but then came back to me with me to Zambia to Lusaka when I was at the NIS. So so again, put her life and liberty, liberty more more than anything else. But also the comforts of the South compared to living in the horror horror time in, in Lusaka. You know, you couldn't get anything that was was a difficult living environment. Um, so she she sacrificed a lot. Once I once we once I've moved on to to different. Like the circuit, which because I went to, after the NIS, I that's when I moved into the commercial side mm -hmm. of it with, mm -hmm. with the Sri Lankan job. That was the first one on the circuit. Um, then Cassa and we relocated to Australia. Then um, she she became very independent. You know, she she led her life because I was away for so much time that she she controlled the purse strings back in Perth. You know, she the money was there. Um, she she managed well. She managed the family. She raised the girls on her own, essentially. Um, putting all of the input was hers. So um, she became very independent. Not not that she could have done without me. I, I don't want to say that or, or mm -hmm. even infer that. Or I don't want to even think that. But she probably could have. But mm -hmm. um, she she lived a, a very independent life. And when I would come back from places like Sri Lanka. I would sort of be very cautious about how I move things around in the fridge, for example, because she had a system of things away, you know? thanks, thanks that, That's my life now. Yeah. And I, yeah. we've lived, I want we've lived in the same house for 10 years. And when the children grew up, she, she developed and she moved, she re, refocused on her art and, uh, and, and, and is very sort of, as I said, quite well, well known here in the West at the moment now and uh, and she sort of evolved in that so i think that's given a um, a certain strength but at the same time she did tell me and and there's no doubt about it said how lonely her life was while i was away and um, she dealt with endless loneliness and and i probably could say well so did i but at the same time i knew that i was pretty active and busy um and particularly in places like sri lanka not so much with, with yamani um, mm. but um yeah, loneliness was was a part of our our marriage for a long time, and mm -hmm. and, and and the marriage struggle. You know, no, nothing's easy in a marriage. You know, you there's a lot of give and take and uh, a compromise, and uh, and and Cass compromised more than than I did probably. And but but we are now coming up. What what are we? Forty forty five years, forty six years married yeah. now. Wow, well, well. known one another for nearly fifty years. So and 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 our life is, I love her. You know. Um, I'm quite happy to admit that, you know, she's, I've always said she was the foundation of everything I did. She was the sort of anchor for me. Um, 
she kept me anchored to 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 the, the real the necessities of life, what I had to do, um, and uh, and and yeah, without her, I, I who who knows where I would have ended up, you know. So um, she she's a critical part of my life, um, and now as we reach retirement, um, semi-retirement, you know, half-hearted retirement, I'm uh, <laughs> we we the relationship is very good, you know. We we have our own lives as such, you know. We have our own. Just she's just gone out for. For a meeting with some a lunch with some of the Zimbabwean friends who live here now. Um, she has her art, she has a meeting, she has her exhibition, and I have my my own life, which is probably not as exciting as hers um, because I'm five years older and and my head is now sort of seventy, and I'm thinking, well, I've still got a couple of things I can and want to do, but I'm in no hurry to do them, you know. So. Um, what, what what are those things, John? I mean, just out of interest. I mean, I, I, I can't see you retire given everything you've done in the true sense of the word. So, what what are, what are some of those things? I still, I still have a company. I, I do run a company, which is not very active at the moment, but but the, the structure is there. Mm-hmm. And I still present I present proposals by invitation. People contact me and say, "Look, we we're looking at a training program for a small special forces unit in Somalia. Mm. Um, could you do something?" So I'll put the proposal in. And I know that nine times out of 10 or 95 times out of 100, if it's an African inquiry, it's going to go nowhere. But it keeps me focused. I'll write up a proposal. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll cost it and I'll say, this is what I can do. And I can find a team of five guys pretty easily. If you want it, um, here it is. And, and as I said, well, a couple of years ago, or a year and a half, I was talking to Mozambicans, but they, they didn't have the money. Mm, um, mm. Earlier this year, I was talking to Burkina Faso, elements in Burkina Faso in the government before it was overthrown in the coup. Um, I'm still in touch with um, a couple of elements in Mogadishu about the training team, but, but they admit they have no money. And if they, if, if they could, if I could source a, a funder like the US Department of State or something, mm. uh, that'd be great. They'd give me all the support. So I still look to those things, but it's all half-hearted, you know, I don't yeah. need it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm not that keen on traveling at the moment. I've been tied, locked down here for two years with the COVID stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's actually given me a sort of sense that, well, you know, I don't need to travel anymore. Um, I can do a lot off on online. And I have people here and there. If I, I, I for example, I have a delegation coming down from a, an African country to Joburg, uh, end of the month. And I have somebody in Joburg who can, who can host that meeting. So I don't really have to go. I have to go. If yeah. I choose not to. So it's like that. It's more hands-off stuff, you know. And, yeah. uh, and you know, I'm writing writing a second book, which is more a prequel to to the fading light, and right. as to what motivated me, and, and more coverage of the Australian SAS. Um, so we'll see well, where that goes. Wonderful. Well, I guess that change of pace uh, has also given us uh, the fading light, right? Uh, which, which again, yeah. I, I must say, it's an amazing book, and I'll put uh, put a link to it. Uh, in the in the show notes, uh, John. Thank you so much. Uh, uh, you've given me way more time than uh, than I would have ever hoped. Uh, but it was a fascinating discussion. Thank you. Good talking. Might catch up for a beer one day, face to face. I certainly hope so. Okay. Thank you, John. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Voices of War. And since you got this far, please consider showing your support by liking and reviewing the show wherever you catch your pods. Also, if you're able, please consider showing your support through our Patreon or Buy Me A Coffee page. Links to both are in the show notes. Thank you, and until next time.